Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and I have one of the most impactful episodes we have ever recorded today. I'm so excited to bring you our guest, Bobby Gill, who is the Director of Development and Communications for the Savory Institute. This conversation is an exploration of a book that Bobby recommended to me with the people that come on the podcast, I often ask them if there's a book that's made a particular impact on them or their work. And Bobby recommended The Systems View of Life by Frijov Capra and Pierre Luigi Luisi. And it is the book I had been waiting my entire life to read. And so I devoured it. It's a, it's designed as a textbook and I thought it was one of the most impactful things that I had ever read. And it really helped to give me language to explain what I have been experiencing as a farmer, as a nutrition therapist, as a butcher, and as somebody who is constantly seeking greater connection with my environment. And so I think that the contents of this episode are going to really plumb the depths of this exploration that this podcast is truly about, which is to find all the interconnected and juicy relationships between mind, body, and soil. I want to just briefly read this quote uh, by Werner Heisenberg. Who, who is the, the father of the uncertainty principle in physics. And he says, The world thus appears as a complicated tissue of events in which connections of different kinds alternate or overlap or combine and thereby determine the texture of the whole. When I explore this idea that we are a part of nature, that we are a part of our environment and not superimposed on it or separate from it. A lot of it is exploring all those different relationships that happen within that greater environment. This idea that there is some grand tapestry and each thread plays an integral role in how the rest of it connects. And I think that you're going to find a lot of that within this podcast. I do want to say that Bobby Gill is incredible and his work with the Savory Institute is absolutely worth looking into. We don't get really deep into the Savory Institute in this podcast. We go a completely different direction, but I've provided some links in the show notes to podcast episodes and a TEDx talk where Bobby really talks about that work with Savory. And I just can't wait for you to get to know on a deeper level, this incredibly beautiful and thoughtful and impactful human being. And I'm just so grateful to Bobby for really sharing his heart with me on this episode. I want to keep the intro really short because the podcast is quite long, but let me tell you that it is worth every minute. We 
go all sorts of places and not one of them wasn't just profound and meaningful. If this podcast has the impact on you that it did on me as I recorded it, may I ask for you to please share it with any friends, any family members that might also enjoy it, post it to your social media. This really helps spread the word in an organic manner for the podcast. And as always, if you leave a written review on iTunes podcasts and send me a snapshot of it, I will send you in turn a handwritten note so that we can connect in real life. And it's, it's part of a way of me giving back to my audience that is so important in keeping this podcast rolling and gaining momentum in the way that it is. And in honor of that, each week I read a little review from one of you, and this one perfectly aligns with the contents of this podcast. It's entitled Hidden Gem, and it's by Kurt. I've been a conservationist going on 30 years now and have found what we all have in common is a deep connection with the things that surround us every day. My daughter, an artist, featured a traffic cone in her early artwork because she said no one values something as common as a traffic cone, but it actually has a tremendous function. Kate does an amazing job in making the traffic cones in our lives appreciated, whether it's living strenuously or thinking about something as common as wood. She really is a wonderful person with wonderful guests. Kurt, I can't thank you enough for that beautiful review, and I think that you will find that this podcast is all about unveiling the traffic cones in our lives. And so without further ado, and thank you so much for listening, I have our incredible guest today, Bobby Gill. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm just so appreciative. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I, I really can't even begin to express my gratitude. Mm, that means so much. I, um, I'm like, I don't think you know how excited I am for this conversation because I don't know. I feel like given my work with savory, the conversations are fairly similar, you know, where it's let's talk grazing and soil health and regenerative ag and all of those things, incredibly important. And I'm super important, deeply, deeply passionate about all of those things. But there's this other level of discussion and understanding of how the world works that I think is so uh, transformational, pivotal, like, I don't know, it just, it brings so much clarity to everything. And I think you and I come from a similar background and perspective in terms of personal health. Like we, we lie at the intersection of, of health, you know, personal health and planetary health yeah. and look at those interconnected ecologies. And then there's this aspect of mental health and spirituality and like, just like the interconnectedness of all things and, and understanding that not just at like a, you know, A equals B and like being able to memorize, you know, what amino acids do, like that sort of thing is important, but there's like this deeper understanding of being and knowing uh, that I think creates so much energy as it relates to the work that we're doing. I do too. And I think it's that shift back from linear to nonlinear and, and is paradigm shifting in terms of how we understand how we fit into the world around us. I mean, literally just this morning, I saw this little cartoon and it was depicting 
a woman considering how she's not separate from the environment. Like we use this word environment to mean something outside of us. And I want to come back to this idea that we are apart and connected into that space. And I think that you have so many of the, the puzzle pieces in that regard. And as I, I, no, no, I don't. I, 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 there are many, this is a very incomplete puzzle. The puzzle is never complete. <laughs> I love that. I think that's important to acknowledge is that the puzzle will never, ever be complete, but you can try to understand different pieces. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, it's like, you don't have to have the whole puzzle, but you can be like, Oh, look, I snapped a few pieces into place. Oh, that's a flower. That's pretty beautiful, isn't that? <laughs> like, you can understand some certain pieces without having the totality of it. And you don't need the totality of it to appreciate those smaller pieces and to understand what those are. Like, it doesn't matter what the, because there is no like goal, there's no end point that we're going for in life. You know, the, the ultimate end is, you know, when we cease to be here and all that we are as carbon-based life forms gets composted back into the earth and turned into new life. And so, you know, that's the fate that we all, you know, end at, but what does it matter? Like, that's not what we should be planning for. That's not what we should be focused on. It's focused on the here and now and being able to fully express who we are as individuals and, fully express our place in this world, you know, as part of a larger integrated whole that is the living systems of life and just doing the best we can with that and appreciating it for what it is. And I think when you feel like you're a part, like you are a single thread in this greater tapestry of the whole, it begins to bring you into that present here and now, as opposed Mm -hmm. to this sort of, and I think this, this was actually one of the first things I wanted to talk about anyway, this break from cyclical thinking into a more linear goal oriented, uh, product end product instead of process space. Yeah. And one of the things, and we can, why don't we just dive in? Um, because well, sure. Why not? I mean, I assume we're already recording <laughs> we for are. the podcast. We, I, are, because we I didn't figured, get through introductions. No, no. You didn't like microphone <laughs> test. What did you eat for breakfast? You know, that whole thing. It's just like, Bam, no, let's, let's just dive right in. Um, and I thought that we might do that. So I hit record and I was like, man, we'll just, we'll just dive right in and see what happens. And I kind of like, it. I kind of like dropping into podcasts in the middle of a conversation because I think you and I have been having this conversation through this beautiful book that you gifted me. Mm-hmm. You gave me the yeah. book I've literally been waiting my whole life to read. And it, oh, I can't even tell you what it meant to me. It it brought together all of these different concepts that I had been trying to give language to, and it gave me more language and it gave me more connection. And so you just, you gave me the most beautiful gift that Mm. I can even begin to explain. So. Ah, that's, that's wonderful. That, that book has meant, uh, you know, just as much to me as well. You know, I think I, I came across it maybe two years ago. And so, you know, I've, I'm, you know, my work is deep in holism and understanding the interconnectedness of life. You know, that's what we do at the Savory Institute is we teach, you know, people how to make decisions in a holistic manner. Like that's the core of what we do. And we do it for farmers and ranchers and pastoralists. But when I came across Fritjof Capra's The Systems View of Life, which I have my copy of right here, just 
if anyone wants to see what the cover looks like. Uh, it's it's pretty much a textbook. It's intended to be a, like an undergraduate level textbook, but it is a grand synthesis of, of Fritjof Kopra's life's work, which started as a physicist and then led him to living systems. And for me, you know, my background is a, I'm trained as a biomedical engineer. That's what I did for the first chapter of my life is I went to school to become a biomedical engineer. I worked as a biomedical engineer. I worked for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So I was, uh, you know, a government employee who was regulating cardiovascular devices, you know, really in that mechanical mindset mm-hmm. of the, the biomedical view of biology. You yeah. know, how can we break down the human body into its individual parts? And let's look at those isolated parts and let's optimize those. Let's fix those. Let's understand those to the fullest extent. And understand and if them, we can do that. Yeah, yeah. And understand them through the lens of this idea that we are a machine, that we really mm-hmm. can be broken down into these parts and mm-hmm. not this idea that the, the sum of the parts, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Exactly. Yeah. It's just looking at the parts and saying, yeah, well, you, all you need to do is look at that, look at those individual parts and that's all you need to know. And so it's looking at the human body as a machine and that similar way of viewing the world, I think is how we look at agriculture and ecology and conservation and so many other aspects. We look at it as a machine. How can we break this down into individual parts? How can we reduce the complexity of it into something that the human brain can understand? We're like, oh, okay, well, this does this, and then that does that. And then so if we change this for that, then it equates to this. You know, you can use logic and algorithms and equations to understand the function of things. And that works really well when it comes to mechanical things. That works really well if you're taking apart a computer or a bicycle or a rocket ship or a car or whatever it is, you can, you can break it down to the individual parts and you say, okay, well, the tensile strength is this. And so that means that we are capable of doing this. And then when it reaches this point, this will break, but we can replace that if it breaks, you know, like there's this way of thinking and it's done amazing things for us. You know, the human species is a tool using species. And so we are reliant on this mechanical way of thinking because it's allowed us to use tools, which has allowed us to hunt and it has allowed for our survivability and uh, evolution over millennia. And it's been incredibly powerful for us. But I think the problem we run into is when we take that mechanical way of thinking for tool making, which has now advanced towards you know really complicated yes. things like computers and and things of that nature. And we equate that same line of thinking to living systems. So we've taken how we view machines and we've applied that towards living systems. And there's a very big difference between machines, which are complicated in nature, complicated, you can fully understand every individual piece of the puzzle. You can dissect it. You can replace things when they break. And it does what you tell it to do with full predictability. And that predictability, I think, is the key piece there. That's complicated. And there's a difference between complicated machines and complex adaptive living systems. So complicated and complex. Complexity is infinite. Complexity, you will never understand the totality of it all. 
And if you try to understand all of it, or you try to reduce the infinite complexity into individual parts, say, I have a farm or a ranch, and I'm going to optimize, you know, my beef production, you know, the the dollar per pound that I am able to fetch, you know, at auction, you know, that's what I'm going to optimize. If you reduce everything down to an individual KPI, you're going to have unintended consequences because you are bypassing and you are overlooking the totality of the whole in which that that piece that you are managing exists. And so you need to acknowledge the infinite complexity and the unpredictability of living systems. Because when you have a farm or a ranch or an organization or a family or a society or an economy, these are all complex adaptive living systems that are comprised of organisms, of humans, of animals, of species. And we all have agency and soil and microbes. And we make decisions. We do things out of urges. Sometimes we do things at random. Sometimes properties emerge out of a living system where you're like, huh, that grass grew right there and I wasn't expecting that. Or, wow, look at the way that this swarm of birds just came in and ate all of that stuff, like totally unpredictable. And so when you are trying to apply the mechanical way of thinking of absolute control and predictability to something that is ultimately unpredictable and infinitely complex that has emergent properties that cannot be predicted, you can't ultimately control that system. The best you can do is exist within it and have this cooperative dance with it, this back and forth of understanding of like, I'd like to move things in this direction and I can influence the system, but I can't fully control what happens. So like, I'm going to influence the system. I'm going to move my herd of animals onto this pasture for this period of time. And what I think is going to happen is I'm going to create this type of animal impact. And as time goes on, the grasses will regrow and and that will happen. Oh, shoot. Well, there was a drought and we got hit with this, you know, whatever. You know, there's the unpredictability of weather and climate and, you know, just nature. And you can't predict those things. So how do you adapt to that? And that's ultimately what this systems thinking perspective is, is it is saying, how do we, how do we understand the interconnectedness of all that is life, whether that be farming, ranching, human health, you know, mental health, uh, how societies work, how an organization operates and you manage people within that. And, you know, rather than trying to control these complex adaptive living systems, let's shift our thinking to more of that cooperative dance and feedback loops that are important to know, okay, I tried something. Did it work? No. Okay, let's try it again. And let's move in an iterative fashion towards the direction that we want to be heading, recognizing that there is no ultimate goal, but we can exist within a context of saying like, this is my guiding North star. This is the direction I want to be moving in with my life, with my business, with my family, whatever it may be. How do I make decisions that are going to move in that direction, recognizing that there will be unpredictability and I won't be able to fully reach some sort of endpoint, but I can at least exist uh, along that path and, and do my best. 
I think there's this aspect of it's the interconnected relationship between things and really recognizing that those relationships are what build the foundation for what happens within that system. And I actually, I pulled a quote from Capra that according to the system's view, the essential properties of an organism or living system are properties of the whole, which none of the parts have. They arise from the interactions and relationship between the parts. These properties are destroyed when the system is dissected, either physically or theoretically, into isolated elements. Although we can discern individual parts in any system, these parts are not isolated, and the nature of the whole is always different from the mere sum of its parts." Mm, and I, yeah. and I'm curious, I want to kind of, I want to rewind just a touch and I want to talk about when we break from, because I think naturally humans have an element of systems thinking. We're out there, we're within the context of an ecosystem, we're hunting and gathering and foraging for millennia. And so we understand our role in the environment. We have that, what you and what Capra calls this ecological literacy. And I think with the dawn of agriculture, there begins to be this little break, this little sectioning off. And I think that that, that break with nature and viewing, beginning to view ourselves as separate, I think Charles Eisenstein would call this the myth of separation. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then that gets furthered around the time of Rene Descartes, where we get into this very mechanistic, very reductionist view of thinking and the the mathematics of the time are really mirroring that you have newton that's really reducing everything down into exactly how it moves but taking it out of that context of a of a system and i pulled this quote from werner heisenberg who heisenberg's uncertainty principle for those that are that are that know about that, that this partition has penetrated deeply into the human mind during the three centuries following Descartes, and it will take a long time for it to be replaced by a really different attitude toward the problem of reality. But I think that we naturally want to view things in a cyclical rather than linear nature, because that's what's mirrored to us in nature. Nature is cyclical through seasons, through life and death. And so I just wanted to unpack with you where this break or where these breaks begin to occur. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an aspect of, yes, we as humans are or can be, you know, more holistic in terms of understanding and embodying a system's view of life in terms of what our role is in terms of this larger natural world that we exist in. I think we best embody that when we are in relationship to the world around us. And that includes to the natural environment in terms of our communities, the people around us, and in terms of our relationship to ourselves. So I think when we are in proper relationship, we can better embody that role that we have evolved, that ecological niche that we fill as part of this greater whole that is the living and breathing world around us. Because humans are, are one piece of it, as you've mentioned. And you mentioned Rene Descartes, whose you know, Cartesian worldview, you know, his, his whole thing was that 
separation of mind and matter that, you know, mind is this, you know, thinking the soul, this piece, and then matter is like your brain, your body and all of that. And those are two separate things. And that is, you know, uh, speaking towards that mechanical view of the living world when in actuality, you know, the mind is a process. It's a relationship. It's how it's consciousness. It's how we understand our place in the world. And, you know, that consciousness, you know, isn't an isolated thing that can be analyzed in a certain way and broken down and understood. It is just an, it is the essence of who we are. It is an emergent outcome of the complexity of the human body and all the interconnected parts. I mean, you could go and grow all the different organs and skin and bones and all of that in a lab and try to assemble them together, but you're not going to create a human. Like there is an essence of life there yes. that cannot be manufactured. And, you know, I think acknowledging that is important, but to get back to the piece you were saying of, you know, when do we, you know, when did that bifurcation happen um, of when did we split away from this, you know, uh, kind of holistic embodiment of our role in the natural world. I think that as you mentioned the the dawn of agriculture, you know, some 10,000 years ago is probably a piece there. But I would factor to say that we haven't totally lost it. I think we've more forgotten it. I think it is within us. And I think you can see it at times when people are in proper relationship, as I said, with their environment, with their communities and with themselves. And I think what that looks like is true expression of the whole of who are you as a whole being and that is being true to yourself with your intellectual curiosity and with what you want to do in life and being able to express your thoughts and feelings and art and you know whatever it may be and it's not necessarily a mastery of facts and statistics and knowledge i think that there's a difference there you know being a biomedical engineer by training, I'm very logic-driven, left-brain oriented, and that has served me incredibly well in life. And I very much appreciate that side of me, but only in the past few years have I really been able to, to lean into that other piece of me that is, you know, more creative, um, you know, just acknowledging the the wonder and awe of everything that is life and not needing to understand it all and not needing to have a rationale for why it exists or how it exists, just sitting back and being with it. And I think that that aspect of being, like being with yourself and being with your environment that right there is the embodiment of holism and our role in the natural world. Because you go back to hunter-gatherer times and, you know, they weren't sitting around saying like, okay, well, what's the velocity of the spear throw? And if I do that, can I do this? And like, they're not sitting there like doing math. And, you know, eventually we got to that. And, you know, I'm sure we could dive into, you know, the Greeks and Aristotle and, you know, kind of academia and where all of that arose and, you know, this classic, you know, form of, you know, modern day thought and how all of that arose. But ultimately, we used to exist in the natural world as hunter gatherers, you know, on the savannas of Africa and, you know, just witnessing 
what was around us and being in tune with those cycles of nature, you know, kind of understanding when the sun rises and when it sets or how the seasons come and go or watching how different animals interact with one another or migrate across the landscapes. We were deeply in tuned with those rhythms of the natural world and we had to for our survival. And so there's something uh, that's deep within our DNA and our evolution that connects with the natural world and understands those rhythms of the natural world. And when we can connect in with that, you know, like I know you do a lot of work in terms of your circadian rhythms and what time you get up and, and, you know, all of those sort of things. When we're able to lean in to those rhythms of the natural world, we more fully embody the whole that is ourselves. And when, when we show up as a whole person, we can better serve the community and the environment around us. And if everyone were to better show up for themselves, they would be able to better serve all of those around them. And that requires just that release of needing to know everything and needing to have an answer and logic to every piece and trying to tune in more to who am I How can I more fully express who I am as a person? That's going to look different for every single person. And there's no right answer to it, but it's a being able to pause and listen and reflect and just be with life and yourself and go with the flow of that. It's that cooperative dance. I don't think I could have said that better. And I think, you know, as I was listening to you speak, you you said we can't grow a human in a lab, right? Like we can't take these isolated parts and put them together and find what it is that makes us human. And I think a big part of what makes us human is what we are in relationship to our environment, which is a, a conversation that is constantly evolving and changing and, and, not just our environment, but also within our communities and in relationship to one another, that we can't just exist as this self-isolated ego inside a meat suit, that it is, <laughs> that it is our, our, our constant reaching out and shifting and adapting and evolving with environmental pressures that are really changing us. And I, I want to add to this, you know, something that I've been doing a lot lately is this kind of idea of feminine and masculine embodiment work and what you were speaking to. And we all have this, right? This isn't a gendered thing. We all have aspects of the feminine and the masculine, but this really masculine logic solution structure oriented viewpoint versus this more feminine idea of being in flow and being in Mm -hmm. connection. And there's another really great book called The Fourth Turning that really explores how time operates on these cycles. And I can, I'll link to that in show notes. And they talk about when we make this jump from cyclical to linear time in the Renaissance, like we Mm. kind of make this shift from cyclical. We also make a shift from feminine, which is really represented by the number four, these sort of equal seasons or the phases of the Mm. moon or where all of that is into the shift, into the masculine, into the linear, into the number three, which naturally lends itself to this idea of something is going to be superimposed on the other two things. And, and mm. it's a really interesting space. And I think that we've, we've 
done that, we've flattened, we've made linear the natural cycles that we are constantly experiencing, whether that is the seasons. We have created perpetual summer with, with air condition, you know, with, with heating. We've created uh, perpetual seasons of eating with refrigeration. We've re- created this with the agricultural cycle and, you know, with the rest recovery cycle, like all of these things we have turned into linear processes when they really are cyclical and sort of have this, this concept of the feminine. And I think there, I'm seeing this return in the way that people speak that represents this just wanting to be and to be in concert and in co-creation with the rest of the environment. Yeah, I think there's a, a deep desire for it, especially when you look at the the state of the world that we're in. I mean, there is a lot of trauma happening at the global scale, just in every form, wherever you look, whether it's the, the climate crisis or food sovereignty or water or wildlife or politics or just safety in schools, like yes. there is just trauma, you know, the world over. And when you look at that, you go, wow, why is there so much happening all at once right now? You can kind of go back to like, well, we're not in relationship with who we are as humans. Like we live in this ultra connected digital age where we have access to more information than we've ever had in our entire lives. But that information isn't making us better. It is, you know, when you take that, you know, one aspect of systems thinking is looking at how feedback loops exist, you know, whether they amplify or dampen a certain signal that is going through that system. And so in the example of social media, social media is built upon the advertising model. And so the algorithm, it knows to optimize engagement. It wants people to click and like and comment, and it wants people to click on ads because that's what gives it life. So the feedback loop there is whatever gets more clicks, whatever gets more engagement, regardless of the quality of the engagement gets amplified and you get more of that. And so that's how people go down conspiracy theory rabbit holes. That's how misinformation spreads because misinformation spreads faster than truth on social media. That's been proven over and over again. And so the way that the system operates, it has a feedback loop that amplifies something that we actually don't want. It encourages negative behavior. It encourages damaging behavior to the system because that's what it rewards and incentivize and feeds back into the system. And so if you look at that and say, okay, the information systems that exist within the world are not serving us, how could we create a more optimized feedback loop there? Okay, well, what if we encouraged cooperation somehow? Or what if we just got rid of the advertising model that was the basis of many of our digital technologies? What if there was another model that is yet to be conceived that powered those systems? That would probably better serve who we are as a society and reduce the 
divisiveness and tribalism that is becoming so rampant everywhere you yes. look around the globe. It's not just a problem here in the United States. It is global that you see. And so that's, you know, kind of uh, one way of taking the uh, systems view to not just understand something, you know, from like an intellectual perspective, but to apply that towards the present day and say, how can I use this perspective of the whole and the interconnectedness and the feedback loops and use that to improve and to get a better outcome for what we want in this system? I forget what your initial question was that led me down this no, path. I love but, that. Um, you know, it's something that I, I think, you know, you can take that same line of thinking and apply it, you know, whether you're talking uh, social media, uh, you know, or uh, I always go back to farming and ranching because that's, you know, yeah, my day to day. That's our job. As is yours. Yeah. And, you know, of many peoples, uh, should be more peoples. Yes. But, you know, that, that way of thinking, I think, is a, a way of, not just, you know, theory, but turning it into practice, a way that you can look at these things. I think too, and I haven't fully thought this through, it was just as you were speaking that this kind of came to me, that there is some knowledge of systems thinking on the other side of that algorithm that's manipulating things towards this more divisive nature. And I think that this is one of the most pernicious things in our society right now is how divisive, how unable we are to come to the table and have civil discourse in order to talk about all ideas, good and bad, and to really flesh that out and to have a sense of building something together. And I think that within that system, that it, those systems that are creating those algorithms, they understand that you exist within this, this larger context of all of the evolutionary pressures that have shaped your your mental biology the way that your neurotransmitters work they are preying on your the fact that we really are just sort of these ancient minds in a modern world right i mean modern human sapien at about 200,000 years old and really only having this technology for the last, I mean, 50 years is maybe being generous and our ancient hardware has not caught up. And we, that dopamine response, for example, is still built out of when we're out hunting and gathering and we see a bush with these beautiful red sugary berries all of a sudden and dopamine surges as a mechanism to help us remember where that berry bush is, what season it's in, because it's providing us with this critically important nutrient, this sugar before winter so that we can begin to store fat. And so it has this really specific and necessary mechanism. But when you put that into a digital age of social media, there's, you can exploit that. And so and that is, it is reflective of how we interact with our environment. And so in a way, I guess what I'm thinking about is I think that the, the tech overlords that exist, I guess we'll call them, have this knowledge of how you exist in relationship to a system and how you were shaped by your environment. And I think in turn, this is changing how the human brain is shaped by its digital environment. Mm -hmm. There's an aspect there 
you know, you, you mentioned the term overlords, which I think is hilarious. Um, but, you know, I think when people think of a lot of the problems that are happening globally, it's convenient for us. You know, we always want to have an actor who mm. is the, the bad guy. And we always want to think that there's some room of evil henchmen mm-hmm. that are scheming to, you know, to destroy the world. And perhaps some of those people exist in some way, shape or form. But you know, I prescribe more to the worldview that it is more a disconnection from reality. It, mm. You know, like, I don't believe that Mark Zuckerberg is sitting there saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to design an algorithm that's going to exploit people and it's going to manipulate them to do X, Y, and Z. I, I think he is... He has decided that engagement is important, that connection to people is the only thing that matters. So he has reduced the totality of human connection and cooperation and relationship to the metrics of how many times does your communication touch another person. Like he has reduced the complexity of that to a single metric and has optimized for that single metric with a feedback loop of monetary reward in terms of advertising. And so the system has been designed in a way that has taken complexity and has reduced it down into a single or a few metrics that are being optimized. And when you are optimizing a few components, a, a few pieces of a complex system at the expense of other pieces, you create this large imbalance because a a healthy ecosystem is one that's in dynamic equilibrium. It's when everything is in proper relationship, information and nutrients and energy and water is all flowing evenly throughout this cooperative dance of life. But when you start ignoring some of those pieces and just try to maximize this one corner of the system over here, because you've decided that's what matters because of your position and life and the power you have, or, you know, human hubris, whatever it may be, what you're doing is you are growing one piece of this system and it's creating a disequilibrium that throws off that dynamic balance of the living system that you're operating within. And that's where these, you know, uh, negative feedback loops start coming into, well, not negative feedback loops, because negative is a dampening feedback loop, but a an undesirable feedback loop yes. um, really starts to get amplified. I wonder if you could almost, I, I completely agree with everything that you said. And I think it is this, this focusing on just the metric, the, this quantitative metric of how much money, how much you know connection does this generate? And then you would view some of the negative implications of that as almost an emergent property of that system mm-hmm. yeah. an unintended consequence those unintended consequences those negative those externalities that rear their heads and cause problems those are known as wicked problems and so wicked problems are you know climate change is a wicked problem it is something that no one intended to happen a room full of evil henchmen didn't plan it out but we have been living within a complex adaptive living world and treating it as if it's a machine. And we have ignored the, the fundamental properties and relationships of our existence in that world. And as we've put those aside, it has created these 
negative consequences, which are known as wicked problems. They, they emerge seemingly out of nowhere. They build upon themselves. You know, what starts as something small then amplifies and just gets worse and worse. And then as humans, you know, still in that logical, mechanical way of thinking, we start playing the game of whack-a-mole where we're like, oh, well, then this problem perked up. Well, okay, well, you've got this. Well, then take this pill to solve that problem. And oh, well, well, there's an unintended consequence of that pill. Well, then take that pill for this. But then that creates this. So then take that pill and you end up playing this game of whack-a-mole, whether that's on your ranch or, you know, for your own personal health or for society at large. And ultimately what we're doing is we're putting band-aids over bullet holes. We're addressing symptoms and not addressing root causes of problems. And so that's another aspect that I think is, um, you know, taking the theory of systems thinking of holism of interconnectedness and taking that to practice is rather than trying to address every undesirable symptom that arises, taking a step back, looking at the totality of what it is you are managing, what is the whole that you have influence over and, trying to identify what are the root causes of the problems, because maybe you're not making as much money as you need to on your ranch. And so you're saying, I need to make more money. Okay, well, so I'll just start bringing in feed, you know, I'll, I'll bring in some corn, I'm gonna feed it to my animals, that'll fatten them up, I'll be able to make more money on it that way. But that doesn't really solve the issue of why you're not making money. It could be that you have really expensive equipment that, you know, you've got leases on that, you know, you're leveraged to the max and that's not really a good position to be in. And maybe you could sell some of that equipment because you don't need to be doing this portion of your business. And instead you could move to a fully grass-based operation where the energy into it is free because it comes from the sun. And if you were to plan your grazing in a way that optimizes the forage production, that's a free resource that you should capitalize on. And so how can you reduce the, the cost of your inputs and be more intentional on what you're doing to address the root cause of, you know, the profitability that is the current factor that you're worried about. Or as an individual, you are uh, trying to think of an example of, you know, human health, uh, where, you know, you are experiencing, you know, uh, gut problems, and you're saying, okay, well, I'm experiencing all these gut problems, the doc says here, take this medicine, this will help you know, address your SIBO or like whatever it is. And really it's because you're overstressed because you're overworked. You've got too much stressors in life and that's causing a cascade of things to happen within you. And so in that situation, it's really some stress management that's needed. And maybe you need to get into meditation or slow down and do some gratitude journaling or whatever it may be. You need to offload some projects at work and that's ultimately going to resolve the health issues that you're facing. And so that shift from how can we play whack-a-mole with all the symptoms to how do we take a step back and try to identify root causes and address those uh, goes a long way. This is one of my biggest refrains is that I think we should be looking for root causes. And I think also that it's so important that that is plural. So often we're looking for the singular root cause, but in a complex mm-hmm. system, we're not always going to find this single, the single point where something has, has started to shift in the way that it might work optimally. And, and so you've really hit on something that I'm just incredibly passionate about. And it leads me, you know, one of my questions for you is how do we begin to 
adopt this idea of systems thinking when it is so distant from the current paradigm of thinking. And I've heard you refer to this and and Capra too, as a sense of ecological literacy, that when we, Mm -hmm. when we really place ourselves within the environment, we better understand those systems because we're a part of them. I mean, and then that's, that's part of how we view and see the world. And so how do we bring people both, and I think my question is both adults that are already maybe on a more linear sort of quantitative over qualitative uh, measuring over mapping viewpoint. But also I know that you are a fairly new, not that new anymore, father. And so how do we engender this sense of connection and systems thinking in the next generation? Well, you brought up ecological literacy, which I think is core to it all. You know, we, you know, current society is the most ecologically illiterate, illiterate society that has ever existed on this planet. We are the most removed from the natural world that we have ever been. You know, we are disconnected from our food systems. We are disconnected from understanding the local flora and fauna of our environment. We are disconnected, as you said, from the the seasons and we live in a state of perpetual air conditioning and heating and, you know, artificial lights Mm -hmm. and all of these things, which I, you know, I'm not perfect. Of course, you know, I'm relishing in the the cooling that I have in my house right now. Absolutely. It's going to be like close to a hundred degrees. I'm sweating today. in the cooling <laughs> I don't have in my house right now. And I'm yeah, looking and, at blue And light. that's not to say, that's not to say we need to no. have this romantic notion no. of the past that we need to romanticize uh, hunter gatherers and say, let's throw away technology and let's become Luddites and no. let's, you know, just wear our you know, loincloths and walk around barefoot. And, you know, and for some people, maybe that's your thing, go for it. But like, the reality is, we exist in the year 2022, right now. And, you know, there is technology that we are using right now. And there are needs that we have, and we can't just entirely divorce ourselves from it. And I think we can integrate that technology can become a healthy part of this system. I think that we are at such a young, like we, we are infants with technology and what is to come in the next hundreds and thousands of years, we will look back on this time and, and maybe laugh at ourselves in terms of Mm -hmm. the relationship that we have with technology. And so I think that, I mean, what life is, life has been on this planet for 3.6 billion years, human beings for about, uh, 2 million years, uh, or, and that are, you know, uh, hominids for like 200, mm-hmm. 2 million years, 200,000 years has been human evolution. We've had agriculture for about 10,000 years. And then we've had the internet for like 30. Yeah. So, and I you think, know, <laughs> have you ever seen that there's a beautiful graph that represents this as a 24 hour clock and humans show up and I, I I'm not a hundred percent on this. Humans show up just a couple of minutes to midnight within the yeah. clock of the earth. And so th- mm-hmm. this is all just so new and, and recorded human history, you know, from like 5,000 BC onwards is like the last second yes or you know pretty much it's like the when you realize the immensity of life that has ever existed and will ever exist and then you think about not just the immensity of time but also the immensity of size of the universe 
that we live in and acknowledge that the universe is expanding at like an immense rate, you realize, wow, like there's, I mean, there's something powerful there when you sit with it. But to go back to your question of how do we integrate this way of viewing the world and acknowledging our interconnectedness as humans within the natural world, not as separate from it, but as an integral part of it. I think that ecological literacy is a component. I think we need to reconnect with the natural world and also do a reconnection to our community and to ourselves. And, you know, that is personal work for all of us to do. And so I think reestablishing those relationships is step one for sure. But in practical terms, I think there are some things that can be done. And I know that I'm biased because I, you know, work for the Savory Institute and this is what we teach. You know, I think most people, when they hear the term or, you know, they hear of the Savory Institute and Alan Savory, they think of holistic planned grazing. This is, you know, a planning procedure for uh, planning the grazing of herbivores across a grassland ecosystem, whether that's farming, ranching, pastoralists, you know, we can teach people how to move animals across a landscape to get the optimal outcome on that land. But that's one component of a larger umbrella that is holistic management. And holistic management is a decision-making framework for managing complexity. And so while there is a planning procedure for grazing, there's also a land planning piece and a financial planning piece and a, and a biological monitoring piece. Those are all the individual components that exist within the larger umbrella of holistic management, which is a framework that basically says, okay, identify the whole that you exist in. So I, Bobby, let's use an example. Let's say I manage a ranch. Okay. I manage a ranch. Who, who does that affect? Who is involved? Well, there's some ranch hands that do X, Y, and Z. The landlord is this person. Uh, this person has veto power whenever I make decisions because this is their role within this. And let's get everyone at the table and say, all right, what is it that you want in life? What do you want this landscape to look like two, 300 years into the future? So it's not something that you will see yourself, but what do you want out of this? And not just what do you want the landscape and the environment to look like? What do you want your quality of life to look like? So let's not just focus on the ecological piece. Let's focus on the social component. What's your quality of life? And embedded with that is a financial aspect because, you know, inevitably I want to have a profitable ranch that I, you know, I'm, you know, economically comfortable, you know, financially savvy and all that sort of stuff. So it's, trying to broaden the perspective from one individual component. How can I make the most money possible? And it's taking more of a triple bottom line approach of how can I look at the ecological, the social, and the financial? And let's define those far out into the future. And then now you have that defined. You say there, there's then a framework for decision-making that says, okay, you use this. We call that what I just described. That's your holistic context. That then becomes your North Star. That is your guiding light for all decisions, any tough decision that you come across. Like, hey, we're facing a drought. Do we destock our herd or do we bring in outside feed? What's the right answer here? Well, the, your gut reaction might be to do this. But if you take a step back and you look at the whole, you'd realize, well, if we brought in feed that would get us to survive through to the spring. But, you know, ultimately, ecologically, it's not doing what we need for the environment because blah, blah, blah. You know, 
there are ways to assess all of that. And so it's forcing you to take a step back and say, is the decision I'm making going to lead in the direction that ultimately I want to go? And so it creates that feedback loop of, is this decision moving in the direction? Because as humans, we are really good at chasing the shiny thing and, you know, shooting from the hip and being like, well, we've always done it this way. And well, I think we should do it this way. And so you do it without really giving it some thought. And so this is a framework that forces you to take a step back, consider the whole that you are managing and how it affects everyone involved from a variety of perspectives. And let's make decisions that try to get you as close as possible to the direction you want to go in. And there's a series of checks. There's eight questions that you run through whenever we call them the context checks. The first one being, does this address the root cause of the problem? So like, does it address the root cause? Uh, Does this create the greatest marginal reaction? You look at gross profitability. You look at the sustainability of your decision. And then, you know, you go through all of these. And ultimately, the eighth question is, what's your gut feel? about it. So it's approaching a decision from a bunch of different perspectives to force to to kind of override our human nature that is to be impulsive and you know to follow our gut and I think because human nature is so well trained in this mechanical way of thinking it's a framework to force you to be more holistic in how you make decisions and you know, I can speak for the tens of thousands of people across the world that we've trained who are managing their land and livestock and families and organizations this way. Like it really changes how you see the world mm-hmm. and forces you to to embrace the the interconnectedness of the individual pieces because you'll say, well, yeah, I want to do this thing, but ultimately I know that there's going to be this repercussion. You get better and better as time goes on at seeing the world through that holistic lens. And then those eight questions that you run through the context checks, they become second nature that you just like automatically quickly run through in the back of your head. Whenever you're faced with a decision, you're that's, that's not going to be root cause. So like, no, let's, let's, let's get creative and find a new way of doing things. So Ultimately, to put a bow on this, you know, uh, Q&A section, the way that I would say we embody this holistic, more integrated living systems view of life is to be intentional on how we make decisions and try to adopt a more holistic approach. Whether you use the specific holistic management framework that we teach at the Savory Institute, that's great. Or whether you have another way of embodying that interconnectedness and holism, you know, do it in whatever way makes the most sense to you. But, you know, try to find a way to be more intentional and holistic in how we make decisions, because the way we make decisions is ultimately informed by our worldview. And if we're viewing the world as a machine, we're going to be, you know, reducing the complexity of that down to individual components and trying to optimize individual pieces, whether that is. I want to optimize my beef production. I want to optimize the money in my bank account. I want to optimize my happiness. I want to optimize, you know, uh, how much weight I can lift. You know, there's, we make all of these decisions and we might be making these decisions at the expense of others. So, you know, try to take a step back and see the greater whole. 
This is such a beautiful framework. And I know that I've talked a lot on this podcast about developing a set of values and how important that's been for the way that I guide and lead in my own life. But this really takes it a step further into considering how those values interact with all of these different pieces of your life and create a sense of long-term thinking which I think is sorely lacking, you know, that we are considering generations ahead of us, that we are considering what the environment looks like ahead of us. And to pull, to pull another quote from Capra, you know, I pulled this idea that quote, a, a sustainable society is one that satisfies its needs without jeopardizing the prospects of future generations. And so I think it's also incorporating something that is really vital and looking at it as a whole. And it is a paradigm shift, I think, when you begin to to use this as a lens through which you view the world. And it does take, like you said, practice before it becomes something that is a little bit more reflexive, a little bit more ingrained. But within that, I also want to ask you, how do we how do we shift this view and then impart that onto our children? Because I think that the next generation has a very different opportunity to begin to see this in childhood and to have that be the operating system that they are then growing up with and going out into the world with. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, I I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I think we can try our best to embody it ourselves and use that as an example that we can then show for others and hope that that resonates with them, that our embodiment of holism allows them to see that, to feel that, and want to embody that for themselves. And so I think that's probably the most important thing we can do, but there are probably aspects of you know, so my daughter, she's 19 months, so she's a year and a half. And, you know, I try to be very intentional of, you know, if she is expressing something, like she doesn't have a lot of language yet. She's got a little bit, but not a lot. But when she's expressing something, she's got a strong feeling or a desire or whatever it is. I think our default at times is like, that is an inconvenience to me because I'm trying to cook dinner and you're saying, ah, I want to be held. And like, that's inconvenient for me because it takes me off the path that I was intending to be on. And rather than trying to suppress that and shut that down, let me suppress the expression of who you are as a whole person. Like give that the attention it deserves, like allow her the space to express whatever she is feeling and acknowledge it, see it, try to understand where it's coming from. And, you know, oftentimes I find that when she's, you know, being, you know, loud and obnoxious or whatever it may be, if I try to resist it, it makes it worse. If I put aside what I'm doing for a second and I just am fully present with her and I'm like, I, you have my attention, let me absorb what it is you're trying to give to me, normally that's all she needs. It's like recognition and like acknowledgement of what is of what she is feeling. And that's all she needs. She just needs, she's just looking for relationship. She's looking for connection. She's like, I'm trying to express this, I'm trying to express this. Ah, I connected with dad. I expressed it. Okay, that's all I needed. 
now I'm going to go back and I'm going to doodle on this thing. Like, and, and that's all that's needed at times. And so I think there's an aspect of practicing the acknowledgement of the whole person so that she is, you know, as she grows up to be, uh, you know, as she grows up, she is better versed in expressing herself and knowing who she is as a person and hopefully having that connection to the natural world, spending time outside, you know, cooking with, with mom and dad so that she understands the importance of food because food is such an important aspect of who we are as people and and growing food and visiting farms and playing outside and, you know, understanding the cycles and the rhythms of nature, just because not because I've taught them to her, but because she has experienced them because she has existed within them. And I think that's the best we can do is try to just address those underlying conditions, you know, try to create the conditions that hopefully the emergent properties that you want to see, hopefully they will emerge if you've done things the right way and you've addressed those underlying conditions. It's like, if you want to have a really healthy landscape or farm or a ranch, you can't just say, I'm going to optimize my carbon because that might lead you to like develop some climate sequestration factory that, you know, pumps CO2 out of the atmosphere and stores it underground rather than saying, okay, how can I have a, how can I create a diversity of life such that the plants and the animals and the microbes and the fungi and everything is all in symbiotic relationship and feeding into one another and creating this state of abundance? You know, let me create those conditions by ensuring that I've got a biodiversity of plant species, that my water is cycling properly through my soils. Uh, you know, how do I ensure that nutrients, you know, from like cattle manure is properly cycling through? How do I ensure that there's a good biodiversity of plants and animals and not just a diversity, but a succession in terms of ages, you know, so that you've got that deep complexity and richness in your system. And then if you have all of those things, regeneration and abundance should be an outcome that just emerges from that system. And so I think, you know, as it relates to how do you apply this to the younger generation, connect them to nature, let them embody who they are, you know, address all those underlying conditions and hopefully, you know, good, healthy, whole, you know, integrated whole of a person will emerge out of that in life. I have you just touched base on two questions I have about about carbon as the single metric and nutrient cycling. But before I go there, I want to I want to just tease out one more question in this path, because you said this piece with our children, which should be practicing the acknowledgement of the whole person. And throughout this conversation, you've also talked about how we connect back to ourselves, that that connection is something that is really vital in considering a a systems view of life, that we understand the connection we have with ourselves, which I think in many ways, acknowledging the whole person for ourselves is a part of that too. And I'm just curious what that work, what that connection to self has looked like for you. Mm, So connection to self for me Well, I could tell you where it came from. It came from some deep work with psychedelics. That has been a a really important piece of my life over the last couple of years. 
And it has allowed me to see myself and see the world around me in a different way. And so when I do psychedelics, I am not one to like go take some mushrooms and go to a concert. I am more one to lay down on the couch uh, with some, you know, with a blindfold on and, you know, some really beautiful mantra type music and do some real deep inner exploration. And I have had some of the most beautiful and profound experiences in my life in this capacity. And I have a community of others that, you know, share this same perspective on life and the same approach. And so, you know, there's a community that I'm connected with that, you know, kind of has this similar perspective. And so for me, you know, I guess one, you know, and maybe I'll talk about my first journey, my first psychedelic journey. So a couple of years back, you know, a friend of mine, he asked if I was interested and I had just so happened to, I had just read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. It's a great book. And I, it is. And I came across that because I was a fan of Michael Pollan, you know, from Omnivore's Dilemma, Botany of Desire, you know, all of those books have been deeply influential on me and, you know, kind of have indirectly led me to this role within regenerative agriculture. I'm just largely inspired by Michael Pollan's writing. And so when he came out with a book on psychedelics and myself, never been a psychedelic person, not a drug person, not any of that, you know, I was always a straight A straight edge, you know, drugs are bad type person growing up, you know, class president, all that stuff, you know, the golden child. (laughs) I, you know, read Michael Pollan's book and go, huh, well, that's not what I was expecting to, to hear from him, but you know, he makes some very valid points on, you know, kind of how these compounds have been demonized, uh, specifically, you know, through the counterculture of the 60s, you know, there was a very intentional demonization of psychedelics as a way to suppress the counterculture because the counterculture was anti-war. And there are quotes directly from the Nixon administration that speak to this. And so like kind of looking at this and going, oh, there's a different way of seeing this that I hadn't considered before. So that opened up my mind just in terms of what are these and perhaps what am I missing that, you know, what, what is it that I have been told about this thing, whether that is human health or agriculture or psychedelics, like there is this conventional wisdom that relates to all of these things that perhaps is not entirely accurate or perhaps is missing something. And so I'm open to that. I'm open to unconventional ways of thinking. So a friend invited me to this group, and in the group, you know, I had, when I eventually dropped in, you know, when the drugs eventually kicked in for me, really, um, and it took a while, you know, we probably started the night at eight o'clock PM and this was like 1 AM. And I was like, I'm not feeling anything. I'm not feeling anything. And the, the, the guide, the facilitator, she was like, I think you're your brain is just too strong. It is just fighting it. It does not want to be out of control. Like I'm very logic driven and I understand everything. And I think there's this sense of control that has been, you know, control and mastery and knowing that has driven me my entire life. But when it hit, what it felt like was I dropped in and then all of a sudden it felt like my heart just burst wide open. And it felt like this, just like beams of love and light, just like, just like beaming out of me. And I just relished in that for 
an hour, a couple hours. I don't know. It was just the most incredible sensation and feeling of love and not just like love with, you know, a romantic no. partner, but like just this eternal love that exists throughout the world. Yes. And, you know, people talk about that and it seems, it sounds very cliche of like, love is the answer to all of your global problems. And it sounds very hippy dippy. And, I, and trust me, I understand that very deeply, you know, as an engineer left brain, I'm like, all right, hippies get out of here. But <laughs> feeling it is a very, very, very different experience than knowing it and reading about it. And for that, you know, with that experience, being able to sit in that feeling for that period of time, I think unlocked something in me that I then understood that there is more to this world around us than I could, that I know, or that I could possibly comprehend. And ever since that moment, and since, you know, all the other journeys that I've had that have all been different in their own way and, and very profound in very different ways. I feel like that rounded me out as a person, you know, whereas before very logic driven perfection mastery with the, the work that I've done, uh, you know, the, the interpersonal exploration, I feel more rounded and whole as a person that I am now more likely to sit in the present moment and just be with it. And so that can look like, you know, where, where it shows up the most is when I'm with my daughter and, you know, sometimes, you know, she'll just want to be held and sometimes she'll just like bury her head onto my shoulder and I'm able to just like close my eyes and just like resonate with that and like connect in with her. It's like this, this beautiful, deep, deep, like spiritual level connection yes. with another human. And there's something so beautiful about that. And I don't know that I was capable of fully feeling that and embodying that prior to doing this type of work. So I think what psychedelics have allowed me to do is they've allowed me to feel certain connections in life that before, you know, I think I... I knew and I'm like, I understand love and I understand, you know, how everything works and is connected. But now rather than understanding it, I feel it and I can be in it at this very deep state and I can access it in a much easier way that I don't think I ever would have been able to before. That is incredible. And I think that that difference between knowing and understanding connection on a, on a logical and intellectual level and understanding connection on a felt and experiential level and to experience that connection as love, which while maybe seemingly trite, I do think speaks to a greater aspect of our human psyche here that is immensely capable of love and and perhaps not uniquely so but i think that that is a deep component as you were speaking i was thinking too about have you read lisa miller's the awakened brain no i haven't it's about the evolutionary role that spirituality plays in the human psyche that there is actually this space 
in our brains that it, that is measurable, that tends towards the spiritual, and that that fulfills something within whatever it is that means to be human, that actually brings our systems into a state of balance. And she's mm-hmm. a researcher at Columbia, and she's she's looked at this thoroughly through MRI scans and through multiple different research papers that that the aspect of spirituality of love which really is just a connection to something greater even if that mm-hmm. thing is nature or that thing is the love that you feel for your daughter actually begins to to change our nervous system to change the morphology of our brains that we are meant to connect to this and so i think that any plant medicine that is facilitating that connection that perhaps has been broken over time or is difficult for people like you and and also myself that exist in that very left brain space to access what a gift it is. It is. And it, and it shows itself not just in, you know, I think the, the aspect of, oh, love for your daughter, you know, like to provide other contexts for how that embodies and to apply that towards this larger conversation we've been having. It could also be, you know, just when I step outside on a sunny day and like there's birds chirping and like my bare feet are in the grass and, you know, I'm able to not because I'm like, all right, I am going to sit here and I am going to relish in this, but it's just kind of something washes over me that says, close your eyes, just uh, soak this up real quick. How beautiful of a moment is this? Yes. And the ability to have full presence is incredibly powerful. And whether you get that through psychedelics or plant medicines or whatever you want to call them, or you get it through breath work or meditation, or spirituality, or rhythmic dancing, or singing, or like, there's so many different modalities that can bring it about. And so there's no one size fits all solution here, but more of a choose your own adventure and figure out what works for you as an individual. And it could be a multitude of those things Mm -hmm. that you find helpful. And maybe some of them you don't. And that's fine. But, you know, find what works for you. Because if you go back and apply this evolutionary lens to the human existence and to ecology, you know, psychedelics have been in, you know, there's evidence that psychedelics yes. have been in use for millennia. Very you know, there long is time. Across ancient, many cultures. Across all cultures. Yes. Uh, you know, all, you know, all of the major religions that exist today have some sort of early mystical basis, you know, whether you're talking Christianity, which if you read Brian Mirarescu's book, The Immortality Key mm. is fantastic. Okay. That one dives into early Christianity and kind of how that uh, equates back to the Eleusinian mysteries and some evidence that he discovered there. It's fantastic. Okay, what's going on um, the list? Mike Crowley has a book called The Secret Drugs of Buddhism, which looks at early Vajrayana Buddhism and kind of uh, the psychedelic usage there. And then you go back to, you know, the Vedic religions and Soma, which is very clearly documented as, you know, like the oldest religion, but, you know, is documented as Soma is this substance that people were drinking to experience enlightenment and transcendent states. It is very clearly 
written out there. And then you go back even further and you look at cave art and there's depictions of shamans and people holding mushrooms or peyote or, you know, ergot fungus, which is the basis for LSD and like all these other things. These have existed throughout human existence, uh, you know, for a long, long time, yes. you know, before recorded history, uh, before language, perhaps before sort of homo sapiens and into it, it deeper lineages. Yes. Well, if you go back to, I mean, there's, you know, there's different theories out there, you know, for example, uh, Terrence and Dennis McKenna have their stoned ape theory, which is that, you know, early hominids walking on the African savannas, you know, us being, hunter gatherers and, you know, looking around for food, you know, you would sample food, you know, things, you know, is this edible? Can this provide me nutrition? And if they came across psilocybe mushrooms, you know, magic mushrooms growing out of a cow pie out there on the savannah, because they're following the, the ancient herbivores that existed because they are hunters and that's how they, you know, uh, exist and, you know, feed themselves. Oh, here's a mushroom growing out of this cow pie. Let me try this. Boom. You know, you see this entirely different worldview and their theory there with the stoned ape theory is that that transcendent state allowed for the growth and the development of the human brain to what it is today. Now, I'm not going to say that that theory is entirely true or that I fully back that. Like it's a theory and we don't know. And that's, I think the important thing to recognize is that theories just like you know uh memes or stories or whatever it is they are ways for the human brain to try to encapsulate the totality of an existence and understand it and all of those ways are imperfect there is no perfect way of encapsulate even science science is a way you know whether it's science or art or whatever it may be, it's a way of trying to understand the world and to show it and to express it and understand it. And there's going to be imperfections. You know, science is always coming up with new discoveries each and every day. It's a process. That disprove. Yeah, it's a process. And that's what life is. It's a process. And we're trying to understand our place in it. And we'll never understand our place in it fully, but we can embody it. And we don't need to understand it fully to embody it and be present in it. And I think that aspect that we're never going to understand our place in it is an important part of this, that we are, you know, in many ways, constantly oscillating between the the quest for deeper understanding, though not finite understanding, and this sense of just wanting to be present, to be here and now, to not be going after that deeper end point of knowledge that doesn't exist. Yeah. I think so much of this is interesting because I think it is this holistic view of life that actually brought me on my own spiritual journey. Like I I came to it through the lens of better understanding ecology from finding ecological literacy and seeing that connection between everything and feeling a sense of rightness and connectedness in a in a greater sense than I had ever experienced. And and so I think in many ways that's a really great place to begin to lead us back into some of that ecological view through the lens of your work at Savory. Yeah, where do we start? Yeah, where do we start? So <laughs> you mentioned a couple of things that had been on my list. You mentioned 
looking at carbon as a single metric, and maybe we want to kind of give an overview of savory first, but looking at carbon as just the single metric, you know, to put a, put a bandaid on and not, (laughs) uh, and nutrient cycling, which I was recently listening to a podcast with you. And I heard you speak about nutrient cycling in a way that, that really piqued my curiosity. And so I, I want to at least get back to those things, but Let's talk about the work that savory does in grasslands because coming sure. from the West, I mean, this was my passion. That's what led me to butchery was seeing how grasslands could be regenerated with what, and I loved this, you called ruminants as engineers of an ecosystem. So mm-hmm. let's, they are. let's start there. Yeah. Well, I mean, ruminants um, have co-evolved with grasslands for millennia. You know, if you go back and look, you take this evolutionary perspective on life, you know, what's the quote that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. I forget who said that, uh, but it's such a powerful quote. And if you apply that and say, okay, how can I look at the world around me through this evolutionary lens, you'll see some patterns of how life used to exist before things rapidly shifted in the last couple hundred, couple thousand of years, whatever, you know, frame of time you want to look at. And from that evolutionary lens, you see that for millennia, grasslands, which are one third of the earth's land mass, you know, 5 billion hectares or 12 and a half billion acres, they have always existed with ruminant animals on them, with grazing herbivores that have moved across those landscapes. Grazing herbivores are uh, they are prey to pack hunting predators. And so as herbivores, their protective mechanism is to bunch up into a herd. And that changes the behavior of the herd. Because when you are bunched up in a herd, you're going to be less selective of the plants that you eat in front of you. Because you are tightly bunched, there is going to be a lot of impact on that land. Those hooves are really going to disturb the soil, which is going to allow for better water infiltration. It's going to allow for the urine and the dung to be better incorporated into it. And that urine and dung acts as a natural fertilizer for that land. But then the cattle, you know, obviously don't want to be standing in their own urine and dung. So they move along to a fresh pasture of grass. And so the herd moves about in this kind of natural migration across a landscape because of the predator prey balance. Because, you know, say in North America, because of the gray wolf, they would stay tightly bunched up. Uh, You know, you can say the same thing for, you know, look at the, the great wildebeest migration, which still exists in Africa, or you look at, um, you know, caribou or, you know, pick any type of ruminant animal that exists on this planet. And there's a predator that is changing the dynamics of how that animal exists. Well, if you look at the modern context, most of our grazing herbivores have been domesticated. So, you know, instead of bison roaming across North America, you know, with unfettered access to the the prairies, now we have cattle that are mostly contained in feedlots, some out on pasture. And we have put up roads and fences and other infrastructure that doesn't allow for them to move about. We've also killed off most of their predators. There's some efforts to reintroduce wolves in the U.S., but I mean, the the numbers of 
grazing herbivores and predators to have that proper predator prey dynamic would be immense that we'd never be able to fully get to given just the physical development of the landscape that we have here in the States and in many places around the world. So how do you replicate that dynamic in this modern context? Like we were saying, we don't want to romanticize the past and say, let's take down all the fences, let's break up all the roads and cities, and let's go all live out in the woods again. You know, how do you embrace the that relationship of life, predator and prey and grassland, you know, plants and animals, predator and prey? How do you embrace that in this modern context? And there's a way that you can do it by planning the grazing. Instead of the wolves acting as the prey that keeps the livestock bunched up and moving about, humans can come in with portable electric fencing, or you could be a shepherd that's walking with your flock, or a herder that's moving your cattle, or you put up permanent fencing and you just move them about from pasture to pasture. And you plan the movements through pastures based on the growth rates and the recovery rates of those grasses so that you can ensure the greatest ecological function and desired outcomes there. And so that's what is entailed within that component of holistic planned grazing that we teach at the Savory Institute. It's planning your grazing in a way that's going to mimic those ancestral migratory patterns and behaviors of the animals so that you get the proper animal impact so that you are planning for the recovery periods of those grasses. And so that you are considering the whole of what is going on on that landscape, not just focusing on the cattle, but also the natural wildlife, the biodiversity of species. All of those are factored into the planning process in one way, shape or form. So that's what we do as a nonprofit. Saver Institute's a nonprofit. We teach that to farmers and ranchers and pastoralist communities across the globe, you know, and that looks different in all different contexts. So, you know, we work with the Maasai in Kenya and the way they graze is going to look very different from gauchos in Patagonia. It's going to look different from reindeer herders in Norway. And that's going to look very different from cowboys in the American West. And it's going to look very different from you and Josh's farm in upstate New York. And so all of these are grazing herbivores on grass, but they exist within a very different context, whether that's a cultural context or geography or soil type or grass species or local markets and policy and laws or whatever it may be. All of the above. All of the above are all factored in and all at play whenever you make a decision. So there's no one size fits all approach to how you graze animals in a regenerative manner. Rather, there are some inherent pieces of ecological literacy that are important to understand, like energy flow, how much photosynthesis is happening, how much sun are you capturing through grass, how much is your water cycling through the land properly, are your nutrients cycling through the land properly that urine and dung is it incorporating, and the community dynamics, the biodiversity and the succession of species. And so we have those four pieces of those four ecosystem processes that we teach. And then we teach the grazing planning and we teach the decision-making framework to ensure that all decisions are made within that holistic context, you know, that guiding North star to make sure that you aren't taking a reductionist mechanical approach to how you make decisions when you're dealing with the infinite complexities of land and livestock and how they affect not just your land and your livestock, but the communities around you and the people that eat your food and everything. The ecosystem as a whole. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So that's what we do at Savory. I think that this is so important. And I think that there's, 
it it's become dogmatic in this space that there's this prescriptive single solution for how this is done. And this is giving instead an entire context that is considering all these different components of that system. And so I just, yeah. yeah. And it's incredibly important to do that because how would that be if the Savory Institute, there's 17 of us, you know, we're headquartered in Boulder, but, you know, we kind of exist throughout the States. We've got one person who lives in Spain you know, like if we were to show up to the Maasai Mara, you know, in Kenya and say, this is how you have to do this. I have figured it all out. Me, you know, mm-hmm. that's this very, um, mm. that's happened a lot in history yes. and it hasn't really gone over well. No, it has not. Um, <laughs> and so it's important to have that humility in saying the people that, the people that know best, the people that are going to do it right are the people that are doing it directly. The people that are on the ground that have that connection to the land and they understand it and they are living it day to day. They are the ones that need to be making these decisions. They are the ones that know how this works. Sometimes they just may need a little bit of guidance through a framework that helps them understand that context that they exist, that they exist in. And so it really gives agency back to the land manager and allows for creativity and innovation and, adaptation, which is really the most important part, because you go back to complex adaptive living systems, you know, weather events are going to change, you know, you're going to get pests that come in, the the market price changes, like all these variables are always at play. And so if you're following a prescription of like, well, I have to do this next, and I have to do this, there's going to be unintended consequences. And it's better to look at the whole of what they are managing and allow them to figure out what is the best thing for my land base, given the context in which I exist and what I want to come out of it? Yes. And I think that something really struck me in there that you are not only teaching critical thinking, which I think is incredibly important to look at complexity, but you are also tapping into humans' innate ability to be critical thinkers, to to see this as a whole, right? That this, this concept isn't lost. It's just, it, maybe it's buried and to really tap into that across a very wide range of landscapes and cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that traditional ecological knowledge, you know, has always existed. And I think credit is due to indigenous cultures that for millennia have better existed within their environment than Western cultures presently do. And, you know, that is to recognize that indigenous cultures are still here and are still managing land and have, you know, traditions and cultures and ritual and whatever it may be that allow for a greater reverence to the world around them. And through traditions and storytelling and myth and whatever it may be, there are lessons that exist there that are timeless and are are how previous generations were able to express their understanding of the world around them. And in our modern era, we express that understanding through the scientific process and the and peer-reviewed literature. And it's like, well, in nature, so-and-so published that when you do this, this happens. And look at this wonderful discovery. 
And that's one form of knowledge transmission, but it's not the only form of knowledge transmission. Knowledge transfer also happens through storytelling. And it could be through a myth of, you know, this magical creature that came and embodied the spirit of blah, 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 you know, like, not to like, uh, to write it off by saying blah, 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 that, that probably could be misinterpreted. But to say that through the creation of myth and storytelling and origin stories, deeply embedded within those are understandings and learnings of how the world works. And the outcome of transmitting those stories is a development of reverence (laughs) and increased connection to the world around you. And there's incredible value in that. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that these aspects of cultures outside of our own may seem foreign and we may not always understand them, but those things exist for a reason and they wouldn't exist if they didn't confer some sort of evolutionary advantage towards that culture. And so it's important to (laughs) acknowledge that and embrace that. And perhaps we won't understand exactly how this origin story allowed this culture to do X, Y, and Z, or how that is applicable in you know the present year. But we don't need to understand that. All we need to do is hear it and respect it. And that is like the embodiment of those stories and, and holism is just embracing what has come about before us and trying to integrate that into the present moment because life builds on life. And so the best we can do is exist in the present day and integrate what has come before us with reverence. I, I'm just, I'm blown away by what you said. And, and there is almost this, this concept of story as an emergent property of culture and as something that's incredibly important within a system. And that just resonates really deeply for me and something that has to be incorporated in how we, and how we move forward within cultures. And story is something that I think is incredibly crucial to how we, move forward. I think this is my attempt at storytelling because I think yeah. that we we better understand the lens through the world the 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 way that the world functions through the lens of people telling us their stories and yeah. and getting that chance to connect with a different maybe a different viewpoint or to connect with different ideas and and to truly connect and I think that there is an evolutionary precedent for telling stories around the fire, that that is really mm-hmm. where we exchanged information. And I'm always mm-hmm. curious. Where we exchanged where... information. It's where we cooked our food. Yes. It's where we kept ourselves warm yes. and safe. And so it warded off predators. Mm-hmm. And so there's that, <laughs> that deep uh, yearning in all of us. Like you, whenever you see a campfire you know how everyone just kind of is like blankly staring into the fire? Yeah. Like that's something within us yes. because we are naturally drawn to it because it is safety, it is survival, it is sustenance, it is sharing and connection and community. Like fire, you know, is the holder of all of that for us. So naturally we are drawn to it because those that came before us whose genetic makeup 
was not attracted to fire. They were the ones out moseying around, you know, across the savanna out on their own while everyone else was gathered around the fire and they got eaten by the lions. Yeah, you know, not a like good survival they strategy. Did, they didn't re- they didn't reproduce, you know, evolution was not in their favor. And so the traits that exist today exist because they were selected for through evol- evolutionary pressure over time. Yes. And, and with story being a part of that, maybe that's, mm-hmm. that's harder to look at through that reductionist scientific lens, but is, is, is undoubtedly part and parcel of the human experience. Yeah. Well, you talk about, you know, like this being storytelling, which I would agree. It's an exploration to try to understand more of the whole that is Bobby, or that is Kate, or that is Savory Institute, or that is Western Daughters, or whatever it may be. It's a deeper dive into understanding the complexities of that, acknowledging that I will never be able to fully express exactly who I am on a microphone, on a podcast. And the reductionist approach to that would be like, if you just read my bio, and you're like, well, Bobby's a biomedical engineer, he does communications and fundraising for Savory, he's a father, he used to be, you know, a competitive ultra runner and blah, like you you throw some labels out there and labels do such a poor job of truly encapsulating a thing, whether that is a person, whether that is an ethos that you live by, a philosophy, a practice. Like it's so easy to place a label on something, but that label does such a poor job of speaking to the complexity and richness of what that thing is. And I think that's what makes labels easy to attack. Um, You know, you mentioned Charles Eisenstein earlier, which I love him. Love Charles Eisenstein, especially his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. It's a beautiful book. And it's so good. And in that book, he talks about the othering that we do as humans. You know, we have a tendency to view ourselves, our community, our tribe, and then, then there are the others. And you create this separation and you look at them and say, well, they are, you know, their political beliefs are X. So therefore, I am the inner group. They are the outer group. They are the opposition. They are the other. And we are the good guys. They're the bad guys. Like we do this everywhere. My diet is better than this diet. And my group is better than this group. And like we do that over and over and over again as humans. And all that's doing is it is divorcing ourselves from others that are actually connected to us. Those people that we other for one reason or another, because we say, well, your diet doesn't consider X, Y, and Z, and therefore it's wrong. And mine does X, Y, and Z, ABC. So therefore it's right. Like what you're doing is you're separating yourself from others in the world around you, but we all exist because of others around us. Everyone has a contribution in this world, whether, you know, you are the cable guy who has, you know, established the cable that we are using for this podcast, or you're a farmer that's growing the food, or you're a butcher that is selling it to you, or, you know, you're a politician that's making policy that informs all the things, whether you agree with it or not. Like everyone contributes in some way to the world in which we exist. And like in the grander scheme of things, the carbon that we are made of will eventually become the carbon of other living things into the future. So like our existence 
depends on the existence of others that came before us and will contribute to the existence of those that come after us, as will the decisions we make during our time here on this planet. Those decisions we make will form the world around us and that world around us will be what those life forms that come next will exist within and they will form that landscape and it will go on and on and on just as it always has. And I think it's important to recognize that and to, to not other folks and, and try to separate yourself from them because when you create, you know, when you slap a label on something and you create this separation you are disavowing the truth of what is life. You know, you are, there is an inherent connection that exists between all of us and we have to embrace that. And so even if you disagree with someone because of their political beliefs or their dietary choices or whatever it may be, you still depend on them and they still depend on you. And there's nothing you can do about that. And we are still connected within this web of life in in ways and impacting each other in ways that I think we can only begin to imagine. And I think that when we find connection with people, especially people that are different from us that might not share all of our same viewpoints, I think we find a deeper level of humanity and a deeper, deeper level of understanding for ourselves, for others, and for what we are building that this is the foundation that we grow from, from this point on. And we are creating that system. It goes back, you know, like I was saying with the example of my daughter with acknowledging the totality of who she is. Yeah. That, that human existence, I am acknowledging your humanity. I'm acknowledging what you're experiencing and what you're expressing. And we can do that to, to everyone we come across in, in some way or another, and it is, it is seeing the other person, it is acknowledging their existence and their humanity and their opinion and perspective and not trying to put them in some box so that we can other them and categorize and reduce the vast complexity of who they are and the world around them and how they operate with the world around them. Like, how can we acknowledge that existence and how that then connects back to us? Yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself. And this is something that this conversation is present at our breakfast table, at our dinner table, multiple times a week right now. And I think this is a really big piece of something that's in my heart is how do we build bridges, not tear them down? And yeah, we, we talk about in the, you know, with the Savory Institute, we, we jokingly refer to the different groups that, you know, the different, you know, if there's a Venn diagram uh, of two desperate groups, you know, we kind of exist in the middle and those are kind of the boots and the Birkenstocks, you know, so we're dealing with regenerative agriculture, which, you know, is very much, you know, uh, uh, land-based, you know, farming and ranching, rural communities, you know, the boots, but then also there's this aspect of we're removing carbon from the atmosphere, putting it back into soil, you know, in service to life, you know, we're improving wildlife habitat and, you know, water quality and improving food systems. Like there's very much like the crunchy Birkenstock environmentalist (laughs) uh, aspect there. And we exist with both. Yes. Um, And I, I wear both boots and Birkenstocks. 
literally. Because I embrace both of, yeah, literally <laughs> I wear both of those uh, on a daily basis. Um, you live and in Colorado. Sometimes, you know, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so it depends on which part of Colorado I'm going into. But, you know, I think it's, it would be easy to categorize, well, we work with ranchers, so we are going to fit squarely into this box. Or, no, 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 we are only going to talk about climate change and carbon and environmentalism, rah, 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 and we are going to fit squarely into this box. But that doesn't speak to the, the fullness of what we are doing and what we are bringing to people and communities. And so we engage with farmers and ranchers and pastoralists that come from all different walks of life who normally would never you know, be engaging with one another. Yet within this global network that we have at the Savory Institute, people from all different walks of life coming together and sharing stories and learnings and opportunities with one another, whether it is something related to beef production or reversing climate change, you know, getting grants for that or, you know, whatever it may be, there's all of these pieces that are at play and it's finding that commonality between them that I think our work does. I just, I love that. And, you know, I mean, that was a big impetus for Western daughters is how do we build, bridge this gap between urban consumers of food and rural producers of food and help each each side understand better the other so that we can create a more robust, more resilient food system that is composed of producers and eaters at both the macro level and the level of soil that, that the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm in this way. And so I love that. You mentioned something that I've been thinking about a lot and I want to kind of tie it in. I was listening to one of your podcasts and you were talking about nutrient cycling, particularly in the context of brittle grasslands mm. and the necessity yep. of moisture from animal manure and urine in order to get those nutrients back into the soil. And I, I want you to explain that, but I also, I have been thinking a lot about the loss of nutrient density in both plants and animals over the last 50, 60, however many years, and how that's affecting human health, right? This sort of trophic cascade, this bioaccumulation of nutrients up the food chain, and the critical nature of ensuring that those nutrients are in the soil so that they can be in our vegetables so that they can be in our meat. And I think that with meat in particular, I think that I know that Fred Prevenza and there's a gentleman, I forget his name, are doing some really interesting research. Do you know? You know? Stefan Van Vliet from Duke. Thank you. Are doing some really interesting research on how the biodiversity and the type of forage and the health of soil actually impacts the nutrient density of the meat that you are eating. And, and so I think that this is a, a pretty macro conversation, but I'm curious to unpack it with you through this lens of nutrient cycling. Yeah. So the nutrient cycling perspective, which also is related to water cycles. You know, you can't really divorce one from the other. All of these things are interrelated. You know, I think the the statistic is that when you increase soil organic matter by 1%, you improve the water holding capacity of one acre of land by 20,000 additional gallons. So, Whoa. you know, the ability for that soil as a sponge to hold water is directly connected to the soil organic matter. 
that exists within that because the soil organic matter, you know, when it, that is richer and, and in higher concentrations, there's going to be greater soil life. So you're going to have greater microbes and earthworms and mycorrhizal fungi that are all tunneling through the soil that are creating more porosity, which allows for water to better penetrate and soak in and a variety of other different factors there. But to go back to the concept of brittleness, the brittleness is one of the what we call the four key insights of holistic management. I've mentioned a few of them in the podcast already. So holism being probably the, the, the first and most important the interconnectedness that nature functions in wholes, whole person, whole ecosystem, whole landscape, et cetera. The second being the predator prey connection, which we talked about. So, you know, how do the wolves and the bison, you know, exist together and how does that affect the behavior and the dynamics across that landscape? The third key insight being timing. So this being that the recovery rate of the grass, you know, that overgrazing is a function of time, not a function of how many animals are on a piece of land. So you can have a ton of animals on a piece of land, but if you get them off of that land quick enough, they will not overgraze the grasses. Overgrazing is a function of time, not animals. And so if you are able to plan your movements according to how can I ensure that when a cow takes a bite off of a blade of grass, when you take a bite off of a blade of grass, the roots are then are going to then slough off some of that energy to go back into the reproduction of the above ground component. And then after that above ground component has regrown, then the roots are going to fully regrow. But if a new sprout of grass has come up and the cow comes and takes a bite off of that before the roots have fully developed, that is then going to be decreasing the the, the vigor of that plant species. And eventually it will die because it hasn't had a fully, hasn't had a chance to fully recover. So anyways, timing being one of those key insights as it relates to overgrazing. And then the fourth key insight is brittleness and brittleness refers to the distribution of moisture throughout the year across a landscape. So what does that mean? Well, where you are in New York, you probably have precipitation not every day, but generally speaking throughout the year. Yes. And that is going to lead to green vegetative growth, forage actively growing year round. You have a year round growing system. Now, sometimes it might be more vigorously growing than at other times of year, but 12 months of the year, you've got a growing season. In other parts of the world, for example, Colorado, where I am, there is a very distinct growing season and there's a very distinct non-growing season or dormant season. And that's because of the weather patterns and because of how precipitation falls on this landscape. And so you can attest to having lived in both locations that Colorado landscape looks very different than upstate New York or than a, a typical coastal place might look. And that's because in Colorado, it's going to green up probably around mid-April and it's going to stay green. The grasses are going to start to turn brown or tan probably July, August, and then it gets very dormant. There's no, there's no more growth. And then we get snow throughout the winter, but that moisture that comes from the snow because it's frozen, it's locked up, it's not accessible to the grass, that moisture then melts in the spring. And that's when the green up happens. So we've got our growing season. We've got our non-growing season. 
The thing about moisture is that moisture is a necessary component for the decomposition of materials, of organic matter. So when you have grass, for that grass and or for that biological matter to decay and become soil, it needs two things. It needs microbes and it needs moisture. Where do you get moisture and microbes year round in a dry, brittle landscape during the non-growing season? This is a question that we'll normally ask people when we're out on the ranch. We'll say, look around you. Where year round will you find that moisture and those microbes? Because you might be in a dry spell where you haven't had moisture for the last three, four months. So how are how is that grass going to decompose and cycle back into the soil? And the answer is that it occurs in the rumen of the herbivore. So herbivores have four chambers of the stomach. The first chamber is a rumen, and essentially it's a fermentation vat that is filled with microbes. And what those microbes do is they take the grasses and they break down the cellulose and they turn that into energy that is then digested by the animal. And that comes out as dung on the back end of the animal, which then can reincorporate as fertility and soil life. So herbivores play a critical role in the health of grassland ecosystems, especially grassland ecosystems that have a very defined non-growing or dormant season. The herbivore is critical to the continued cycling of nutrients in that system because they have this special chamber of the stomach that other animals do not have that is absolutely necessary to continue the cycling and breaking down of grasses and turning that into soil fertility cycling those nutrients back into the land. So that realization that when you have a growing season and a non-growing season, grazing herbivores are critically important. That is a, a key piece of holistic management and how we make decisions. And, and the term brittleness to describe that a little more clearly, uh, brittleness is on a scale of one to 10. And so, you know, on a scale, if you're, a uh, a one or a zero on the brittleness scale, that means you're not brittle at all. So that would be somewhere that has year round moisture. That's like a jungle. There is moisture all the time. It is extremely non-brittle. If you grab a handful of grass, you pull it off the ground and you, and you crunch it in your hand, it's going to bounce back. It's not brittle at all. In Colorado, if you're in the dormant season, you grab a handful of grass, you squish it in your hand. It's not going to squish. It's going to crunch. It's very brittle grass that's going to break down because it is in a dormant phase. And so a 10 on the brittleness scale would be a true desert. So you go from like jungle to desert, that's kind of zero to 10. And most people fall somewhere in the middle, you know, in upstate New York, you're probably more like a one or a two in Colorado or probably where I am, it's probably like seven or eight. And that depends on where you are. There's other places in Colorado that have year round moisture that, that do lean a little more non-brittle. For example, uh, in the Gunnison Valley, uh, the way that the precipitation hits there just because of the mountain features and the way that, uh, you know, the weather works, they tend to be a little more non-brittle than other parts of Colorado. And so the way that you manage your animals across that landscape is going to change based on where you are on the brittleness scale. If you have year round available forage and 
continuous moisture, you're going to be able to make decisions. The landscape is going to be a little more forgiving to your management decisions. In a dry, arid, brittle landscape, the land is a little less forgiving. It's also not as productive because you have that period of the year that forage is not growing. And so the way that you manage your herd across that landscape is going to change. What that looks like is instead of having a grazing plan that is what we call an open grazing plan, which is you're constantly monitoring the growth because there's new grass to be had. I'm finding new growth. You're planning constantly based on where the grass is, how much it's growing and when. When you have a non-growing season, you essentially have a reserve of grass. Okay, the spigot is turned off for the year. We now have this much forage. This much forage has to last us until we get more rain and more green growth in the spring. So we need to ration the grass that we have. Also, the grass isn't actively growing. So the consideration of overgrazing is not something that is factored in because you're not in an active growing phase. Active growth is one of those factors of timing, like I was saying, that applies towards the management decisions you make. So all of these pieces kind of interrelate to one another, and they are factors that are considered when you plan the grazing of animals across a landscape. You're looking at the four ecosystem processes. You're acknowledging the holism, the predator-prey connection, the timing for overgrazing, and the brittleness. And you're acknowledging that within your context of who are the decision makers? What do you want out of this? How do you manage to the triple bottom line? And then you include those feedback loops to, to make decisions and see and check, did those decisions lead me in the direction I want to be going? And that's kind of the, the totality of everything together. I love this. And I think that this is something that is really missing in the conversations that I'm seeing happen in the, the greater meat and regenerative agriculture space that really explain how nutrients find themselves back in the soil. I see a lot of talking about the deficit of nutrients in the end products, in vegetables, in meat, and not a lot of talking about how those nutrients are end up there or are maintained within that system. Yeah. Well, in terms of those nutrients, where do those nutrients come from? So those nutrients come from a diversity of plant species, which then the livestock eat and convert into the, the animal protein. Into and biomass. That we then, yeah, into biomass. And so you go back and look at the forage and the biodiversity that is growing on that landscape. And how do you ensure that you are creating a biodiverse habitat? Well, it goes back to managing in a way that is going to honor those ecosystem processes and those key insights. If you are making decisions in line with that, biodiversity should be resulting from that. And then you can get into some of the mechanical explanations of it in terms of, okay, if you have better nutrient cycling, because you're using grazing herbivores to cycle nutrients at all times of the year, to making sure that that fertility is going back into the soil. Well, then you are changing the fungal bacterial ratios of the soil. And if you are more fungal dominated, then the fungi are going to be mining minerals from the rocks at deeper 
depths, and they are going to be bringing those up through the mycorrhizal fungi, this, this mycorrhizal web of life that exists under the soil. And they are going to be taking what they grabbed from rocks and they mined from that. And they're going to be exchanging that with the root tips of the perennial grasses, because the perennial grasses are saying, Hey, I can take sunlight and turn it into sugar. And the fungi are saying, I can take rocks and turn it into nutrients. And they're saying, dope. I want some of that. Mm -hmm. Let's trade these. And so they exchange sugars and nutrients for one another. And then that leads to better plant vigor, which leads to healthier grass species, which makes them more palatable and desirable for the livestock. And if you go back, you had mentioned Fred Provenza and Stefan Van Vliet from uh, Fred's at uh, Utah State mm-hmm. University, Stefan's at Duke. They do lots of incredible work. And, you know, I'll give a plug for Fred's book, uh, Nourished. Nourishment. Yeah, Nourishment. Or Nourished. Or uh, nourished I always get a mixed Whatever up. the title is. We'll, we'll link to it. It's, yeah, it's on my bookshelf around the corner. I can't look at it quickly. But anyways, it's a fantastic book. And it speaks to the innate nutritional wisdom of wildlife and animals that if they are given a plethora of plant species, they are going to go and eat the species that provide them with the nutritional components that they need for species richness. And that can be defined as a bunch of different things, but without them saying, Hey, I need calcium and therefore I'm going to go eat this plant. They just genuinely know their palate drives them to eat something that they need. And so it's important in that context to not just have lots of green grass because you could have lots of green grass of one species of grass and that might not be filling the nutritional needs of those animals. So having a biodiversity of plant species growing and not just different types of species, but some species that are young, some species that are more established, you know, some that have just started growing, some that are kind of in that teenage growth phase where they're sprouting up really, you know, all of those factors contribute towards the nutrient density that exists within the forage. And then that nutrition is what the animal then eats and converts into biomass that we then eat. And you can see that, you know, whether that's carotenoids that make the fats, yes. you know, the fat cap on your steak more orange. That's or seasonal makes too. The, but yes, yeah, as, that, a butcher, exactly. as a butcher, I'm just going to say that's also right. seasonal. Well, and it, it, it speaks to the seasonality of the grasses and what they are doing and what stage of growth they are in and how the seasons change. And so all of the, these things are seasonal. And so the nutrient density of the food that we eat is dependent on the the diversity of species that the animals have access to. And that's not to say that there should just be full unfettered access to the full ranch at all times so that they can pick and choose what they want. Because if they do that, they may be, you know, just like as humans, we have a tendency to overeat things that we find pleasurable. So do other animals. We all have that tendency, but if they are within a herd, there's a lesser tendency. They're going to eat what they need and then they're going to move on and then they're going to find others that provide that same need. So there's a way of getting that nutrition while not overgrazing the landscape that comes into to the dynamics there as well. 
And then, and I think there's this other piece, and then their manure, their urine is actually creating an increase of diversity within the soil system, within these bacterial and fungal communities, which is then increasing mm -hmm. its ability to pull nutrients and to have this conversation between plant root and fungi. And yeah. there's this concept that life begets more life, right? That, that an ecosystem tends towards creating more life. And I think that ruminants really exemplify in an almost, almost a keystone species in that they really begin to create more life in the soil, more diversity in the plants, more diversity in the small wildlife that is there, birds and rabbits and pollinators all, and everything. Yeah. All of these things. And it is tending towards uh, increasing complexity and an increase in life. And that is reflected in the nutrient density of the resulting meat. And I, 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 I'm very interested in this piece right now is what I'll say. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a, what that speaks to right there is that every life form fulfills an ecological niche. You know, every life form is contributing something in some way. And together, those build upon one another and add to the complexity of life. And the more complex a system, the more resilient and healthy it is. It's when we have simplified communities i.e. monocultures, that we run into problems. So nature thrives on complexity and nature abhors a vacuum. And so when you mismanage a landscape because of overgrazing or whatever it may be, or overrest is the opposite of overgrazing, but that's one that people don't often think of. If you leave grasses and they never get grazed, that becomes a problem as well because they will then go senescent and they will die and they will block out the sunlight for new plants to regrow and they will occupy that space without ever having fully decomposed and cycled back into the soil. Resulting in desertification. Yes, absolutely. Desertification being a product of, I mean, many things, but overgrazing, undergrazing, i.e. overrest. You can see both of those within a, a same pasture, and we call that partial rest. And that's when animals have free choice for a long period of time to the grasses. So they are going to overgraze their favorite species, and they are going to neglect their less desirable species. And that's going to lead to overgrazing of some and overrest of others, the death of all. And so that is also a problem and is a factor of management and how the, the behavior and movement of those animals across that landscape. I forget what the question was, man, I do this so often where I just go down this rabbit hole and I'm like, where did we, how did we get here? You're great. We got here talking about nutrient density, uh, just within meat and how that is, is bioaccumulating up the food chain. And I think that we've really uncovered a lot of that process. And I think we've, we've sort of naturally found ourselves in desertification and, <laughs> One thing I really, we don't have to go into a big conversation around it, just how much of our soils, how much of our grasslands are in this process of desertification, whether it's from over rest or over grazing, and just how critical these concepts are to our future. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the numbers are staggering, and it depends on whose numbers you're looking at, but depending on whose numbers you're looking at, it's anywhere from 30 to 70% of the, 
of global grasslands are degrading and turning to desert process known as desertification. And that is horrible because not just for the ecosystem processes, you know, the carbon sequestration that grasslands provide to all of us globally, you know, they are being one third of the earth's landmass. They are a critical player in regulating our climate and sequestering carbon into the soil. But also there are 500 million people whose livelihoods depend on livestock as their main source of income. There are plenty of species who call grasslands home. Uh, grass, you know, we talked about how water cycles equate to soil and organic matter. So you look at not just the small water cycle that exists within a landscape, but then how that translates out to the larger water cycles that exist in terms of drought cycles that we are existing in or that we are seeing in many parts of the globe. Can you unpack Those that all- just a little bit more? This, this. Oh yeah. Here. Okay. Cause um, I'm not, I'm not familiar <laughs> with this and, and I want sure. to be. So there are small and large water cycles. And here is where I will probably refer to um, a gentleman named Walter Jenny, J E H N E. Uh, he's an Australian, I believe. Anyways, he's, uh, he's a master when it comes to really understanding water cycles, but so, okay, where do I start? God. So (laughs) let's go back to photosynthesis. So photosynthesis, uh, let's imagine a blade of grass and you have CO2 and you have sunlight and you have H2O. Those are the components on the beginning end of the equation and, or no, 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 not H2O, O2, oxygen. So you have sunlight and you have oxygen and CO2. Those things are processed through photosynthesis and they create sugars that are then transmitted underground, as we discussed. And the byproduct of that is H2O, it's water. So the byproduct of photosynthesis is H2O. And water has a cooling effect in the atmosphere. So the more photosynthesis that is happening on a landscape, the more water vapor that is transpiring out of those grasses, and it's creating a cooling effect within that landscape. There is also, as we talked about, the water holding capacity of that soil sponge. So when it rains, how much of that water is being absorbed by the soil sponge to be used at a later date for vegetation growth? When, you, when the soil then reaches its full saturation point, it then begins to take any excess water that is then used to recharge underground aquifers, and that's where rivers and streams come from. And so all, rivers and streams, the health of those, the, the health of the plant vigor on our landscape, all ties back to how much vegetation is actively growing on that landscape, and if those water and nutrient cycles are healthy on that landscape. Beautiful. I was missing, I was missing a little piece of that, and that was beautiful. And explained. then those then contribute towards the greater water cycles. For example, how rain clouds are formed and the larger cycles there, which, you know, are a factor of the small water cycles existing on all different landscapes. You think that the water vapor and the moisture that's created in the air of that landscape affects the temperature of that. Well, if you have a 
a landscape that is bare ground versus a landscape that is covered in grass, there's going to be a great temperature difference between the two of them. And the temperature difference between the two of them is going to affect weather patterns because weather has, you know, clouds are affected by the heat that is coming off of a landscape or not. And so by creating landscapes that have different temperatures than what they should have, it is changing the trajectory of how clouds and moisture moves across landscapes and can change weather patterns that you would typically see. And so that is more the larger water cycles. And so when you look at drought, for example, uh, you can you know, kind of go back and see how the management on an individual piece of land affects the small water cycle there on that landscape, but then also that how, how that and other landscapes in the surrounding region contribute towards the larger water cycle and if they get rainfall or not. This is a beautiful uh, deepening of the daisy world experiment that Capra outlines in Systems View of Life, which really helped me better understand where you take, you have this initial, and this is a very, this is going to be a very basic concept of how life is impacting the climate and the environment. You take a world that has the potential for generating both black and white daisies, and those daisies exist within a very narrow temperature gradient that they grow between, you know, 44 and 54 degrees Celsius. I don't remember exactly what it is. And you take the heat of the sun and initially you see a band of black daisies pop up on the belt of this planet. And those black daisies then reflect heat back into the atmosphere and begin to warm the planet up a little bit, which allow for the white daisies to begin to populate just, you know, just above and below the equator. And that those daisies are then going to have a slightly cooling effect that are ref- in the way that they reflect light and begin to balance the system. And as the, as the world begins to heat up a little bit, you see these daisies populate a greater and greater delta of latitudes throughout the mm-hmm. world and create this feedback loop that is creating the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that. I think so. That was a computer simulation, I believe, that someone did that uh, Frischoff talks about in his book. But it's it speaks to how the feedback loops and interconnected dynamics of all these aspects of life influence one another. And so, like that is a extreme simplification of black daisies and white daisies, and you know, operating within temperature bands. But like when you think of it as okay our decisions of how we manage animals on a landscape affects nutrient density and the CO2 concentrations and the water cycles, the small water cycles, the large water cycles. It affects wildlife habitat and those wildlife affect their habitat at like all of these things being interconnected. And, you know, like it's impossible really to, to have a full understanding of how, one decision you make will, you know, what all the downstream effects of that will be because there are so many of them at play and there's randomness that is always a factor in living systems that you need to acknowledge, but there are so like everything affects everything else in so many different ways 
whether you're talking from a thermodynamic aspect, whether you're talking about nutrient cycles, whether you're talking about water, whether you're talking about how behavior affects the behavior of other things, like all of this stuff, you know, you pull on a string in nature and you see that everything's connected. This kind of leads me into a, a sort of greater conversation, and I'm really curious on your perspective on this. As we talk about removing ruminants from the environment, or we have these conversations around taxing ruminants because of their methane emissions, and as we sort of shift into this, I don't want to call it a vilification, but this, this very critical lens of looking at the way that meat and livestock plays within our environment. And and I think that you especially, you know, I noticed when I pulled up your TED talk, it had a little cautionary, disclaimer yeah, on it. a little disclaimer yeah. on it. And I think that we are really tending towards these things just this week in Canada. They are proposing that they put a health label on ground beef, which doesn't speak to, I know there are initiatives in both Ireland and I believe New Zealand to tax methane emissions from livestock. And I'm curious what you think about this. It's, um, I will say, I think these efforts and initiatives come from a place of goodwill. I, agree. I think people have the best of intentions and it's important to acknowledge that and recognize that because acknowledging the goodwill that someone is attempting to do, but perhaps missing the full ecological literacy to understand what it truly is that they are requiring or asking for, I think that, you know, creates a different dynamic, uh, you know, between sides in an argument. But yeah, the, the vilification or, you know, the narrative surrounding livestock is that livestock, specifically cows, cows seem yeah, to be the, at the, butt the sacred of this, cow, yes. the, the sacrificial goat, whatever mm -hmm. it may be. Scapegoat. They seem to get the scapegoat. That's the, the term. <laughs> There's like black sheep, scapegoat, yeah. sacred cow. We need a term for bison. Yeah, that, we do. That. But yeah, but um, that's all to say livestock and specifically cows are, you know, pointed at as this villain in our environmental discussions. And I think where that arises from, at least surface level, is from feedlots, the industrialization of agriculture, um, you know, that is an abhorrent system that flies in the face of the laws of the natural world and does not respect them. And it creates an immense amount of waste and does not operate in a cyclical function like nature does. And so there is land degradation, there's methane emissions, there is incredible amounts of fossil fuel usage for the growing of commodity crops that is used as feed and also, you know, in the machines themselves and, you know, analyze it from a million different ways. Industrial agriculture is a huge problem. Industrial agriculture is not the only option though. And I think that's where people get it wrong. The narrative has been defined as plants versus animals. Yes. And I think that is an unfair characterization because not all livestock is created equal. You can raise animals 
in a feedlot, or you can raise them 100% of their life on pasture in a way that regenerates the health of the ecosystem like we've been discussing for the last two hours. Like it is entirely possible to do it. The data supports it. The pictures of before and after or the fence line comparisons are breathtaking. Yes. And when you see it firsthand, you like it resonates in you where you just like we are drawn to a fire because it provides that safety for us. We are drawn to a healthy grassland open landscape. There's something about it that just feels right with, you know, deeping your bones. You're just like, Oh God, this is so beautiful. And so right. And so it's possible to raise animals in a way that is a net positive for the world we live in. But the narrative has been made that it's plant versus animals. I think a more appropriate narrative would be industrial agriculture versus a more holistic nature-based approach to agriculture. And that, I think, frames the conversation in a more appropriate manner and speaks to the fact that agriculture can exist, good or bad, both in plant and animal agriculture. Just as you have feedlots, you have vast monocultures of crops that are contributing towards desertification and soil erosion and loss of soil fertility and loss of wildlife habitat. That industrialization of agriculture exists both on the plant and animal side. And so I think it's unfair to characterize it as plants versus animals at a, so that I said is I think the superficial explanation for it. I think from a deeper look, you know, from a more systems and holistic view, I think it speaks to our, disconnection from the natural world. We are disconnected from the world around us, and that has led to ecological illiteracy. It has allowed broken feedback loops to exist where we no longer feel the effects of degrading the landscape around us. We no longer notice when species go extinct around us because we are disconnected from it. And so if we were more integrated and connected into the natural world around us, we would see these things, we would feel them, we would notice them, and we would have a reverence for them, and we would care for them, and we would make decisions in a way that stewards the the existence of those life forms, because deep down we would know that the existence of those life forms equates back to my own existence. And so I think from that deeper level, we are disconnected from the natural world. And because of that, it has broken the feedback loops that have kept us safe and healthy and allowing us to evolve all of this time. And that's a byproduct of that mechanistic thinking in the industrial world, which is just so prevalent all around us. Gosh, I could just not agree more. And I think one of the symptoms of that is this championing of industrially produced plant-based meat as a better alternative to all meat, right? Not teasing out the nuance that exists within the livestock agriculture and all of the different ways that we can do that. And championing it in a way that it is better and and better as a blanket statement for both planet and body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And better, better implies that there's like good and bad in the world. And that, that gets back to putting labels on things. And I think rather than good and bad, looking at it more as more, more integrated with hmm. 
the the truths of reality like <laughs> embodying the fullest extent of what is possible you know the fullest ecological expression of life is what we should all be searching for as individuals and as landscapes and as food systems like the fullest expression an embodiment of health is what we all need to yearn for. And if we went for that, that's going to look different from each for each person. And that will acknowledge the bio-individuality of each person's nutritional needs and social needs and desires and the needs of a landscape and a culture. Um, but it allows for the expression of all that. So, you know, let's get back to the the fullest expression of life that we can. I I would love for that to be the basis for the conversation that we're having in in all of these realms because I do think that everybody everybody is coming from a place of good intention and so I I think that that injection of embodying the fullest expression of life and health for every bio individual organism ecosystem community mm -hmm. that should be the goal and it requires us to really plumb the depths of nuance, of complexity, of ecological literacy. Yeah. Well, and it, and it, it starts with reconnection or it requires that reconnection to, to place, to community, to self. And if people are going to truly reconnect with place and their self, they'll find that they feel healthier when they're eating a certain way that is more you know, connected to the natural world and the fullest expression of that natural world. And if they are connected to that place, they will see the effects of their choices and how all of those things connect with one another. And when you see those things and you feel those things, you're going to make different decisions because you, you see them, you embody them, and you can't help but notice how your actions affect them. I think that's beautiful. And I think it's just fostering that connection and helping to lead people back to that. And I think that Provenza has some really seminal studies for us to consider that that innate wisdom that those animals embody of, of being able to find what they need at a nutritional level to best sustain them so that they can fully embody their fullest expression of life and health, that we have that also, that that yeah. is still Those animals us. are also us. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. And he gives examples in the book. I he think does. he gives an example of a... Um, Oh. It was a study that was Whoa. done in the 20s in an orphanage where they... That's what it was. It was an orphanage. And they gave the kids unfettered access to all different kinds of foods. And they didn't say, hey, you should eat this. You should eat that. Why don't you try eating more veggies? Or why don't you... It was just everything they could possibly imagine. And kids had free reign. And these were you know children from like zero to... 10 years old or something like that. And they monitored every single thing they put in their body and kids never ate the same thing. No two kids ate the same thing. And there were weird concoctions of a kid's like drinking orange juice and eating liver yes. and then eating marrow out of a bone and then a banana. And like, it's just all sorts of crazy stuff where you're like, really, you're putting those things together. But what they found was if a child had some sort of underlying disease or nutritional deficiency, they innately gravitated towards the foods that would fulfill that nutrient deficiency 
within them. And that was without any guidance from the outside world. And so there, that innate wisdom that exists within cows and exists within wildlife also exists within us, because just as they are part of nature, we are also part of nature. We all have this innate knowing, but it requires that true connection to what it is that we are eating. And there was something unique about that orphanage study where these kids had never been given any guidance on what food is good or what food is bad. They were just set, they were just given the opportunity and they gravitated towards the things that were best for them. And we have that within all of us. We are just, you know, it's it that innate wisdom is a little lost because of all the learnings that we've had from dietary guidelines or eating of processed foods in childhood that kind of formed our taste buds or affected our body in one way or another. It's still within us, but it's perhaps forgotten. And it is possible to get back to it. It just takes a little bit of work. And I think that's a beautiful thing because, you know, when my wife was pregnant, you know, she would gravitate towards some foods and, you know, be repulsed by others. And rather than being like, well, babe, you know, you need to get this, you know, you want to get the nutrient density. I want you to get vitamin A, D, E, and K2. So let's get you some liver and let's get you just like, let's pay attention to what your body's saying. If your body is saying, man, I am just craving some oranges right now. Maybe you need some vitamin C and like, let's listen to that. Maybe there's something else in an orange that we have not yet discovered, but your body is missing it. Let's, Acknowledge that. Go for it. You don't need to understand exactly what it is, but honor that urge. I mean, obviously, if you're like, man, I could really go for a big bowl of ice cream, like maybe try to interpret that of like, do you need cream? Is there something out of milk that you need? But also like maybe have a bowl of ice cream. Fuck it. Who cares? Like, you know, you're growing a human, like listen to your body and try to embrace that because even if yeah, maybe that's a a whack of sugar that you don't necessarily need. Maybe you're getting something out of that that you that the baby does need. In and its maybe growth. joy and like, is part need, of that. Yeah, just yes. enjoyment yes. alone could be an aspect of that. That there is that there is a more whole perspective of this. Though I think that we do. There is work that you often have to do to get over the hyper palatability of modern foods and to sort of recalibrate your taste buds to, to enjoying some of these foods that we haven't eaten. I actually have a very good friend who is pregnant and she was having some issues with fatigue and we were sort of texting back and forth and talking about what she might be missing. And I mentioned oysters. And as soon as I mentioned it, she was like, nothing has ever sounded better than oysters right now. Yeah. And so I also think that there's this piece of it where our Rolodex of foods that are options, having many of us grown up on cereal and canned soup and different things that we're not even always considering the smorgasbord that's available to us in terms of where we can get certain things. And sure enough, she went out, she got some oysters and that was exactly what she needed. Yeah. That she needed that zinc. Yeah. Probably she needed zinc or she needed some of the copper or she needed zinc and copper in that particular ratio. Or again, and I love that you said this, something that we're not aware of in those oysters because there are more, you know, there are, more philosophies than you have ever dreamt of. Horatio is a quote I really love to butcher very poorly. My husband is Shakespeare. (laughs) I am not. (laughs) But 
there's more to these interactions of these foods within our bodies, within the bodies of our livestock than we could consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's getting back to embracing the whole and, you know, paying attention to those signals and, you know, acknowledging that little person, you know, just like acknowledging what comes up and being inquisitive about it and trying to pay attention to the signals that exist in the world around us and following them, whether that's intuition or gut feeling or, you know, urges and like just asking, what do these mean? What is this trying to tell me? How can I better show up for myself by listening to myself and, you know, where I exist in this world? I love that. I think that's, I think that's perfect. I feel like I have to take everything that we say and I have to wrap it up in the totality of a systems view. Like I hear myself saying it after every question and I'm like, you don't have to wrap it up at the end of every single answer, Bobby. In some ways, I think it's a really interesting thing to do, though, because we are so unaccustomed to this way of looking at the world yeah. that for you and I to sort of be in this thought experiment where everything does mm-hmm. get wrapped up into that that greater philosophy, that greater foundation, however you want to categorize it, yeah. is an interesting thought experiment. And to put it in action for people that are listening to this podcast and are curious how they can themselves begin to think in this way. Yeah. It's kind of like playing six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with systems thinking. And so you're trying to, you know, with whatever comes up in conversation, uh, six degrees, let's uh, systems thinking, everything's connected, you know, uh, and then that's what, you know, Kevin Bacon equals uh, systems thinking, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. And it allows us because I think I think this also speaks to humans tendency to be more myopic, that we get stuck right here with what we see, with what we experience, you know, and I think that this lends itself. This is part of the issue with some of our divisiveness and and some of that lack of long term thinking and being profit driven solely uh, is this sort of myopia that we have troubles getting out of what we immediately know, see and understand and our modalities of thought that are readily available to us. And so it's that taking a deep breath and zooming out and gaining perspective. And and there's a funny tie-in here, but humans want to see that panoramic horizon. They want to see that panoramic vista. It actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system and that it transcends humans. Animals seek out areas where they can get a really big view in order to... Well, it comes back to safety. It allows you a greater ability to assess the landscape of what threats might exist around you. You know, if there is a predator that is coming and you're in a big expansive area, you're going to see them coming from further away. And so just as we are drawn to fire, just as we are drawn to nutrient density, we are drawn to big expansive landscapes. We're drawn to water features. You know, why do people have ponds in their backyard and water features? Like we're drawn to water because water is also safety. Like we need water. We need to cook at a fire. We need to stay warm at a fire. We need to see threats when they're they're coming to us all of these things are you know adaptive based on survival over the years and continue to be and like yeah maybe we're not assessing if a lion is coming over the horizon in our direction but you know there still is something there that 
is part of our DNA. And maybe there's more to it than just assessing the safety of if predators are coming, maybe there's something there that it allows for some sort of cascade of uh, hormones in our body in terms of serotonin release that then allows for calmness and better decision-making. Like who knows? Uh, but there are so many different factors that could be at play. All we know is, you know, if you're drawn to something, lean into it. Yeah. And seek that bigger perspective, zoom out, find it within your thought processes to see how everything is connected, or at least explore what you can see that's connected. Mm -hmm. So you got to lean in and zoom out both at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've talked about so much and I'm wondering if we've missed any major things. I mean, we haven't gotten deep uh, into savory and, you that's know, fine. there's plenty of, you can find the information out there wherever there. you want. I was really, um, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad we've had this conversation because like these are like, this is a, a depth of conversation that I don't often get to have, but it fulfills me so much to be able to speak about these things and to ruminate on these things. But I, I just <laughs> love looking at life from this angle because it makes so much sense and it, it gives permission to release control of having to understand every factor and allows oneself the permission to just slow down and be and acknowledge the the beauty of everything that's around us and you realize all the good that can come from there and so i am so grateful to you for one inviting me onto the podcast but two for asking me what book that i would recommend because that then led to this entire conversation yes. because systems view of life has been so formative for me as has holistic management from alan savory and the two of them in concert with one another, I think are a beautiful pairing that goes from theory to practice and just explains so much about the world around us and not just why things are the way they are, but gives a hopeful look ahead because it shows that these systems are all interconnected and these feedback loops, some of them are broken and all hope is not lost Perhaps we just need to reconnect, reestablish some of these feedback loops, whether it's reconnecting with place or self or community or whatever it may be. And if we can just recreate those feedback loops and get in proper relationship with one another and ourselves, I think there's a lot of hope for the future. And that's what I think I ultimately get out of all of this is in a world where it seems all hope is lost the system's view of life brings hope that there is a path forward and that everything can be in service to life again. It just takes a little, a, a little emphasis on a few different things. A little shift in thinking, a little emphasis on some different things. I ask every guest this question and I feel like you just answered it, which is what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork for, for, now for generations to come? I mean, I would, I would say understand your whole and find the fullest expression of that whole that you can, whether that's yourself, your community, your land, you know, 
figure out your hole and express it to the best of your ability. Oh, I love that. And I, at this, this conversation really has given me so much hope and it's let me explore some of the, the things that I've been ruminating on. And this book has given me a new lease on life. I know that this is going to form the foundation for much more reading to come and much more exploration of how I build relationships in this world between myself and myself and myself and others and myself and my environment and just the way that I see and look for relationships between these interconnected parts. And so I'm just so deeply grateful. And yeah, well, it's, uh, the, the feeling is mutual. You know, I've, I've appreciated your friendship ever since that first time I walked into Western Daughters and was like, hey, I'm Bobby with the Savory <laughs> Institute. I love what you guys are doing here. Let's talk. Let's be friends. And I love that, you know, you created a space that that type of interaction was possible and that for people with, you know, this common language and understanding of life can, can connect um, at this uh, deep level. And, you know, I'm sad that I don't get to see you and Josh when I visit the shop anymore, but um, I'm grateful to connect from afar and maybe I'll come out and visit sometime. Oh, we would love that. And we're, I mean, leaving the West cleaved my heart in two. And so we'll be back. I, I don't know when, but we'll be back when that's something that we can afford to do. And sure. Because this, because farming was too important not to, not to seize that now that this is part of my fullest expression of life and Mm -hmm. of joy. And, but I'm so grateful that you came into the shop and I hope, I hope this is the first of, I hope you will come back and join me on the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Another, we've been going for two hour and 45 minutes. We'll, we'll make it a full four <laughs> we'll hours. We'll just do a full time. four hours. We'll do a, a full thing. Yeah. Um, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find Savory Institute on most social media accounts. Uh, I'm on most social media platforms as well. Great. Uh, you know, we'll link to all those Bobby things. Gill. It's spelled with a zero in some contexts because there's a, a NASCAR driver named Bobby Gill who has taken most of the good social media handles, but whatever. You'll find the link in the show notes. I'll find all of that. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.